Hey, Brad. Yes. Do you know how we fund the program going off track? I know exactly how we fund it. There's one source of income for us, and that is patreon.com slash going off track, where our loving patrons give us money and we give them bonuses. Patreon, stop making up words. (laughs) It's a great place. We do a weekly Thursday night fireside chat. Brad takes all the embarrassing things I say in podcasts that he doesn't put into podcasts and puts it on the Patreon. Funny pictures of Brad in the 90s, usually naked or wearing a wristband. Please sign up. Brad, what's the address? Patreon.com slash going off track. It was, uh, it was fun having Chris gathered on the show i was so excited to have such a funny person and a warm person i feel like i know him because we're literally the same exact age spent the same years in new brunswick yeah know lots of the same people like the same bands but i don't think i've ever had a conversation with him you know dude um you know this show went off track in like the best way i th- i w- i thought it was oh, hilarious i thought we were going to talk about great. comedy and whatever but dude we talked about jersey bands <laughs> <laughs> all sorts i can't believe one nature came up he even shocked me on that one i was like oh my god i just found my one nature mutilated children t-shirt too and <laughs> whipped it out and put it back in rotation my wife is unpleased um, but speaking of New Brunswick, there's one thing I know we talked about in this that, that I think we threw out a little loosely that it, it might not be such a common nomenclature for the rest of America or whoever's listening in the world that the New Brunswick grease trucks is not really like a well-known thing, you know, And but t- two people from New Jersey, especially who spend years in New Brunswick, you talk about it like an old friend, right. you know? <laughs> so so let me just briefly explain what the grease trucks were. They are not this anymore. I'm afraid that, that it has changed. But when I started going in like the, you know, early 90s, even my, my father had taken me there at one point, it was just a, a circle of six food trucks and like parked in a circle in part of a parking lot right near the heart of College Ave, like on the Rutgers campus. But this isn't like, they didn't move. So these weren't like food trucks that cruised around to like farmer's markets. They were just these like old school food trucks, like the ones you would see on like a city street in New York, you know? Wait. But like park. They never left the location? They they never left. It was just these six trucks in a circle. And... And yeah, I'm not talking like $18 lobster rolls and truffle fries (laughs) and the shit that goes on now. Like that whole scene didn't even exist yet. So I I wonder if the grease trucks even started that whole food truck scene. Um, Yeah, they didn't move. And then uh, they were right in the middle of College Ave and there was this bizarre like two... They were open all night long. So there was a 2 a.m. dump out of like every like bar in New Brunswick... So you had like the freaks and the jocks and the frat boys, but then like kind of like the hood bars would let out too at the same time. They all liked the grease trucks. So this place was nuts. Like you could not go there at like 2.15 on a Friday and it just wasn't an absolute shit show. But 
the sandwiches became very famous because they were called the fat sandwiches. I think the first one was the fat cat, which was just two cheeseburgers, French fries, lettuce, mayo, onions, tomatoes, all of it on one sub roll. So it's like the ultimate drunk food, you know? Um, (laughs) And, you know, then as the years went on, it expanded into all these like different variations of like crazy fat person sandwiches, you know, like mixing cheesesteaks and chicken fingers and mozzarella sticks, sauces. And it just became this wild thing where if you went and you ate three of them in a row, you got to name your own. So there was like some weird, you know, like the fat Daryl, which ended up being one of the more famous sandwiches. I think it was voted best sandwich in America by Maxim magazine one year towards the end. (laughs) I'm serious. And Daryl's an actual guy like who just showed up to the Greece. Like they found him for the interview. He's an actual dude who ate the sandwiches. I think some like food, you know, uh, uh, Kobayashi types like heard about this right. and started fucking around. So I think they upped the sandwiches to five instead of three, <laughs> which is absurd. Um, so my favorite was one called the Fat Veggie Indian, which was falafels, mozzarella sticks, French fries, uh, tahini, uh, lettuce, and tomato all in a sub roll. That was my favorite. But I, the best part about these places was. They were like they were run by these like gangster like Lebanese dudes, and <laughs> when you went like during the day or early in the evening before it was busy, they would like vie for your business. So right. one of them would be yelling from one truck, the other one, it's gonna be like, "Hey, brother, brother, come here, check out my beats, check out my beats." <laughs> And then you just blast the stereo trying to get you over to that one. And this other guy be, go, come, come. Hey, I make you the best one. Fat bitch down for my main motherfucker right here. (laughs) He's like, guaranteed you get laid. Come on, brother. Guaranteed you get laid. And they would just like pitch you on and on. I was loyal to one called the Sunrise because they had a, a, a cook in there who would fill up like a milk jug of like weird pink alcoholic juice and you know in the middle of the night if he was if you were like one of his boys he'd hit you with like a solo cup and you didn't know what it was of this mystery juice no no clue oh god um so because of that and the fact that he got me like blindly drunk a couple times i'd always go to sunrise (laughs) so this is a brief summation of what the grease trucks were to me when they first started in the you know mid 90s and the ones that Chris Gethard and I both both knew and enjoyed. Nice. Uh, I'm afraid to say that Rutgers ended up eating the parking lot that it was on and turned it into uh, some brand new like bookstore, mm. you know, something collegiate. Like fucking Starbucks. Um, yeah, some surf taco. And then, uh, yeah, and then now the trucks like scattered around New Brunswick. They go to different, like there's one by the dorms. It's just... It's not the same. It's not the same uh, vibe as it was. But the sandwiches are still like kind of delicious and awesome. I'll I'll go down to get myself a grease truck sandwich about once a year just to just to remind my stomach what I used to do to it all the time. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so that is a summation of the grease trucks. I think it's a perfect intro to get into our guest, Chris Gethard. Let's do it. 
I think before we drop into this podcast, we do want to hype this show because it's coming out on June 1st. Ugh, can't wait. Half my life. Uh, it's really funny. So check it out. It's on like almost, It's. it looks like it's probably going to be on every streaming platform, Amazon, Spotify, Apple TV. Um, check it out. Chris Gethard, Half My Life. It, it's hilarious. He's amazing. He uh, does comedy to alligators. That's all you need to know. Go stream it. It's going I'm recording. Hello? Hello. <laughs> Oh, man, now no one can see my fucking lava lamp, Brad. <laughs> so sorry. I'm so sorry I just, about that. I just fired it up, you know? <laughs> and, like, by mid-interview, I think it was going to be really bubbling. But Sorry, B. <laughs> I can imagine it in my mind. I can imagine it. It's blue? Well, no. It's got, like, blue juice and light green bubbles. And right next to it is a talking Ron Burgundy doll. Ooh. I love everything about that. What does Ron Burgundy say? I don't think. Oh, I've he's out of batteries. This. I was just going to fire him up here. <laughs> fucking oh, tease. Ron! God damn it! He's you in a robe, a sandals. It's it's the scene, the pool scene at the beginning when he goes, "You have an absolutely fantastic Heine." That part. <laughs> Anyone remember it? No. I'm not trying to flex, but do you know I was in the extended cut of Anchorman too? Oh, what part are you in the, are you in that like massively like that usually overcast like news fight scene? Um, that may be it. I, I remember all I remember <laughs> is I helped confront the guy who played Cyclops in the X-Men movies. So James Marston. Oh, that really scary, like British guy. He, I think he was, I, I don't I forget. I, I mean, I actually forget the bit. I just remember they had me improvising and I said a lot of inappropriate things. And then it's probably why I was ultimately cut from the actual movie. Uh, <laughs> how does something like that work? Like, like, I mean, just out of my own uh, naive curiosity, like when you get pulled into something like that, are you really, how much context are you giving as to like what you're trying to actually do? Well, it depends. Like if, you know, Normally, if you're cast, you have a script and you stick to it pretty tightly. So you sort of know the exact goals. But with Adam McKay directing, he comes from an improv background and also like is sort of in, and I say this in a way that I identify with and that I'm saying positively, like he's got a fucked up brain. Right. So he doesn't want he wants he doesn't want to just land where the script goes. He wants to say like, can we find anything more twisted while we're here? <laughs> so he really eggs you on and throws you lines and um, lets you kind of go. And it's really flattering to be trusted with that. But I think I went a little too hard. But I'm I'm really good at getting cut out of movies. I've been cut out of a few notable movies. I was only in the extended cut of the Ghostbusters relaunch with the female Ghostbusters. And wow, okay, I, I was entirely cut out of Iron Man three, and that one was heartbreaking because I'm oh yeah, I'm like a Marvel fanatic from way back. So oh, that one, what were yeah. can you can you paint us a picture of what you were doing in Iron Man three? Mm -hmm. So here's something that'll break your heart. I was supposed to be in the opening scene of Iron oh. Man three. Oh. 
if I remember right, the movie would have started on my face. No. Uh, maybe why they cut it. Maybe focus groups were like, no, <laughs> not him. But I was supposed to play a, um, a scientist from AIM, the Advanced Idea Mechanics. Yeah. S- sitting down with uh, Don Cheadle's character, James Rhodes, to pitch him on rebrands for War Machine. Oh. Uh, which I think is still a major plot point in that movie. They just cut out the pitch scene. Um mm. But what were I, what were like some of the names of the rebrand? I think it was all like Americana themed, if I remember. It was many many years ago, but it was all like patriot driven. <laughs> like they were ba- the bit was basically like, hey, like maybe War Machine isn't going to make you one of the most popular superheroes. Like maybe we yeah, need to right. think about. It. But I I actually don't know what they went with because it's the only Marvel movie I've never seen. I've never had. It would break my heart too much. Ah. Uh, oh. Oh, I'm That's sorry. It's really sad because I also am a humongous Marvel head and I try to, my kids don't understand. I said, you don't realize I've waited four decades for like CGI to get to the point where my comic books of my youth could actually come to life. You know, like I had to live through like horrible Captain America in the 80s and the, yeah. the Spider-Mans that were like... So bad. Yeah, like those old Spider-Man TV movies that they used to show on the yeah. USA Network in the middle of the night. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they were unwatchable. I'm like, oh, when the when they finally got it together and like, and the first couple of like Spider-Mans came out, I was like, so psyched. I gotta say though, un unmatched theme music. You know, like oh yeah, the theme music to the '70s and '80s ones were were by far the best. That's the only thing we haven't gotten better at, maybe. <laughs> I mean, if you, the Spider-Man car, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, if you write theme music so good, the Ramones cover it, you did a good <laughs> right, job. Right. Yeah. I also, yeah. can I please also go on record and say, um, like this was casual conversation and I wasn't, um, totally aware. I don't want to come off like, um, like being like, I got kind of movies, poor me. Like I, <laughs> I ultimately don't care. It's like part of the gig and I'm lucky to do it. But I will also tell you that. Uh, similar to what you just said, Brad, about like we finally got there in um, Captain America Civil War when Spider-Man first showed up. And I liked the Tobey Maguire movies. I really did. like, And yeah. I, think, I think the second one is still maybe the best superhero movie. I think a lot of people say that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, what they got right was Tobey Maguire was sort of like emo about it, which is <laughs> a piece of Spider-Man. But then Tom Holland, he shows up in Civil War and he's a wisecracking teenager who's in over his head. Right, and, which is exactly like those original comics. Oh my God. And I was in the theater and did not expect this, but I started crying. I started, yeah, wow. I burst out crying, like tears down my face. And my wife was next to me going, are you okay? I was like, yeah, they just got him right. They got him right. They finally got him <laughs> totally right. And then the, the really sad moment was we were driving home and I said, I was like, thanks for, you know, you could be really busting my balls right now. Thanks for not making fun of me that I cried over Spider-Man. And she goes, Chris, this is the third time in our relationship you've cried out of Spider-Man. I cried because of Spider-Man. At least, at least this time it was because of a movie. The other two times was you just verbally explaining issues of Spider-Man to me and you broke down crying. That tells you a lot about me and who I Do am. Do you remember what the other issues were that got you so worked up? Uh-huh. The um, two classics. Uh, one was the finale. Like, 
if you read the original Steve Ditko run of Spider-Man, there's an issue where when you read it, especially as an adult, you go, oh, this is Dick, This is the end to Ditko's story when he was clearly like plotting it and Stan Lee was doing the dialogue. And I'm actually not as anti-Stan Lee as a lot of comic book fans. I think Marvel would not be Marvel without him. But oh, yeah. there's this very famous scene um, that they've redone in the movies in certain ways and a lot of other comics pay tribute to it where Dr. Octopus has him crushed under a bunch of machinery and it, there's an underwater base and he basically sits there and goes man, like my Aunt May doesn't know I do this and she lost <laughs> her husband and I'm all she's got and I got I got to get out of it. And he just like, the drawing, Steve Ditko's drawings of it are great where it's just like shows this miraculous burst of strength and it's, uh, it's that one makes me cry. And then the other one, which I bet a lot, a lot of Spider-Man readers probably assumed this is one of the ones I was talking about. It's called uh, The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man. And it was actually only, it was like only the second half of an issue. It was like, if I remember right, it wasn't even a whole issue. It was sort of tacked on as an ancillary part. And it's this thing where you, I'll just, I'll just spoil it if you want. Um, no, please. Yeah, please. <laughs> it's basically, there's this kid in his house and Spider-Man shows up in his house and you're kind of like, what the hell is going on? And he's just kind of chit-chatting with this young boy and the young boy is showing him like, hey, like anytime you've been in the newspaper, I cut out the article, like I'm huge fan like here's all the pictures of you from all the newspapers here's all the articles and he's just kind of gushing and spider-man's like thanks so much like not everybody likes me and you could tell from the daily bugle they don't even like me so it's cool that you do and it was you know and it's great to visit you and then spider-man finally goes to leave and the kid goes hey would you do something for me and spider-man goes what and the kid goes can you tell me who you really are Wow. And Spider-Man pauses and you're reading it and you're like, no, like that's the whole point is like, don't do it. And Spider-Man takes, he sort of explains if I remember it, he's like, yeah, I don't really do that. And then he finally just goes, all right, you know, and takes off the mask and he goes, my name's Peter Parker. I'm actually the guy who took most of those pictures. Uh, I'm Spider-Man. And then when Spider-Man and and then Spider-Man, says something along the lines of like, I actually read about you in the paper and you know, the fight you're fighting is, is more heroic than any of the ones I've fought. And I, I really hope that you keep fighting. And it shows an article Spider-Man read about that kid where it shows that he has terminal cancer and was Spider-Man's biggest fan. And it was kind of like, wow. I, think, I don't know if Make-A-Wish existed, but it was kind of like this kid just wanted to meet Spider-Man before he died. And they do it as this reveal at the end. It's just, I sob. What year was that comic? If I remember right, it was the early to mid 80s. Wow. Yeah, it's really good. It's a, it, It'll tug at your heartstrings. Sure. Although now that I've spoiled it completely, no one will have the full <laughs> emotional effect. <laughs> I can't help but wonder if like the, you know, the, the author or something had like an anecdotal, since it was so like unorthodox for the series, maybe there was like, a real life anecdotal thing that actually happened, you know? Oh, and you just made it even sadder. Yeah. I, I empathize with you though, Chris, cause the part of, and I think it's actually the movie you mentioned. I think it's Spider-Man two. That's Dr. Octopus one, right? With Tobey Maguire. Or is that the first one? I I, I, 
Yeah, I'm not totally sure. But anyway, it's the scene where I they think fight. it's the second one. Yes. I think so, too. It's the scene where they fight on the elevated subway. Oh, of course. You know, yes. where he, like, you know, saves the people, which is very nice. But I, I obviously get very moved when the people on the train, you know, like, join together. And I think that's, like, one of the beauties of those superhero things is, like, you start to see people do things you actually hope they would do in real life. You know? Yeah, and they- so. You're talking about the scene where they kind of crowd surf him and the one guy's like yes. take off his mask and everybody else is like, Oh, right. No, yeah. And they're like, that. he's just a kid. That. He's just a kid. Yeah. And then, yeah, they protect his identity. So it's like this beautiful kind of like, I don't know. It makes me. It, it makes be, you cry. You can say it. it Benny. Does. No, no, no. I already said <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. made me cry. I'm trying to think of why, you know, I guess because I'm always touched in movies by uh, seeing, seeing people do the things like I hope people acted like in real life, which they actually right. don't. Um, Cause you know, there'd be some asshole on that train. Be like, Oh, just give them to the fucking octopus. Let's get out of here. You know, <laughs> yeah. like something, something would have happened. But recently, you know, my kids, I have a five and a four year old Chris and you know, my son has become pretty like enamored with superhero stuff without actually ever seeing the movies. Cause I won't let him watch those full movies yet just cause they're too rough. And I actually, I found a thing on YouTube that's like seven minutes of Spider-Man just shooting himself around the city, you know? So there's no fighting. It's just like him cruising around with like cool shots. And then I showed him that train scene one and I started crying in front of him, like doing the YouTube, you know, and then trying (laughs) to explain the beauty of the humanity and like, I'm literally framing like the whole context of good and evil to my kids, like via Spider-Man right now, you know? Yeah. And then your kid is looking at back at you like, well, you know, you should really let me watch the movie. Cause there was probably a whole emotional build to this that really <laughs> gets you there. And I don't have that dad. Yeah. I thought you were an artist. Thanks for bailing on the arc. You know, doesn't it make sense though? I always, I, I find that, um, Friends of mine who wound up in the music scene that I dwell in, Spider-Man and the X-Men, it makes so much sense because, you know, Peter Parker being like the put upon kid and nobody understands that he has powers, I think is right. a lot of a lot of outcast kids who like play guitar in their basement probably feel that. And then <laughs> Right, right. If th- people only knew my special power to like right. play Randy Rhodes, yeah. Which for me was comedy, you know? And then right. the X-Men is even better because kind of legendarily, Stan Lee was like, I'm just so tired of making up origins, you know? And it's like everything mm. was radioactive radioactive spider, Fantastic right, Four right. went to space and got blasted with rays, gamma bomb for the Hulk. He's like let's just make these guys born this way and we'll see what happens. But it was born out of laziness is, is what I've always heard. But then when you think of the, it's actually the best superhero origin story you could ever have. You were just born a freak. You were born a freak and people don't like you or trust you. And you're going to always feel like a freak. So get together with the other freaks and maybe you'll be okay. Try to be a good person who gives back to the world, even though the world fucking hates you. Like you talk about, a superhero story built for kids who like punk rock to like, and it's like way on target. Yeah. Way on and then target. there's even like the street punk metalheads of the X-Men universe, which is like the Magneto is right crowd, you know? And then you've got like the, 
The Morlocks, the Morlocks live underground. They're the crust punks. They live <laughs> right, in the tunnels right. under New York. Yeah, begging the ones who go to the school for a quarter for a 40. Uh-huh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and they've got six dogs with them, and you're like, I hope those dogs are getting fed, man. You know, all the yeah. things you do say when you see crust punks right. on the street. Yeah, yeah, we're treating this dog better than you do in your fucking house, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've had uh, that one before for sure. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So you're a parent now, yeah? Yes, yes. My son just turned two uh, about a month ago. Ah, oh, great age. Yeah, man. that's so fun. Good. So now you're um. So how's it been? You're out in like the New Jersey suburbs again as a dad. Um, yeah. You know, with like the pandemic, you must have had a sort of a oddly suburban year for a guy like you. Yeah, it, it was. It was really wild. We we I was I was really checking out on New York City. I was hitting a breaking point. And I've always really have identified as a Jersey person. I never bought in and I never wanted to live in Manhattan. I, I largely lived in Queens the whole time, which always felt kind of like the most like blue collarish Jersey like uh suburb that you know, like, you know, uh, m- many artists aren't really living in Staten Island or the Bronx. So out of the three that I had friends in, it always felt the most Jersey to me. And I think that's we, fair. Yeah. And, and, we, and we bought our house before the pandemic. And then we were, you know, all the things you do before you move into a house, you're like, all right, well, if we're going to get it painted, let's get it painted now. We can't, you know. And then the one of the big ones everybody does, all right, we got to get the floors done before we move the furniture in. So we'll get the floors <laughs> done, like standard house things. Yeah. And dudes, the floors were sanded. And we were just waiting. You have to like wait a week for the shit they put on it to dry. Right. And we were just about to move. And then our building in Queens was a co-op so they can just make the rules. And they emailed us the night before our move. And they said, we are not allowing movers into the building because of COVID. And we lived in Jackson Heights, which is the most amazing neighborhood I'll ever live in. It's like so beautiful and such a mix of people and, and, so incredible, but sadly, um, if you think back to the first couple months of the pandemic, it was called the epicenter of the epicenter in America. Oh, that's America. right. Yeah, that's right. And there was that hospital that the Times got, like nurses smuggled footage right. out of the hospital. That hospital yes. was, if you walked out my front door, made a right, walked two avenues, you were at the entrance to that oh, hospital. So. shit. It was so scary because we're like, we're not even trying to flee. Like we owned a house. Yeah, like we had these plans. Yeah. And and it was, I've never been in a situation like this in my entire life where I was like, they said, we don't want people we don't know coming in the building. I'm going, totally get it. Like valid, fair. But I also have a one-year-old in someplace else I could take him. And that's very real too. And we luckily wound up getting out in May, actually about um, a year ago from, we just, two days ago was the year anniversary of us moving to the house. So we had a couple wow. of tense months there. But So you I had t- it all locked down, like house, like house bought and all oh. that, like just prior to the pandemic. Oh, and Hallie, it was oh. so sad being in that area of Queens because you started hearing like sirens and initially it'd be like, man, is traffic really bad in the neighborhood? Like 
why are there all these ambulances that are just sitting in traffic? And then my wife goes, and nobody was even really talking about, it was just like, oh, there's a weird flu going around. My wife goes, those aren't, that's ambulance after ambulance. That's not one ambulance sitting in traffic. It's, it's been going on for too long. And Hallie said, Hallie was like, let's just move everything out and like throw it in the garage and the bait, like whatever we have to do, let's get out of here. And yeah, we'd actually bumped up our move and they said, okay, the soonest we can do it is Monday. And then our co-op board called us at 5 PM on Sunday. And we were like, oh, 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 oh." so, but hanging out with a baby during the pandemic has been amazing because he doesn't know anything's wrong. Right. He has no idea. So it's kind of been a blessing to have him around. He's giving me a lot because of that. Sure. And I and I heard you say somewhere else that you you feel like this is the first time you've been able to maybe step away from being like a workaholic and yeah. kind of learning yeah. how to value like still time a little bit. How's that going? Well, as you know, as an artist who tours, yeah, gone a lot, and being a comedian, if you know, the standards for stand up are super high in New York. I think that's like right. anyone who likes comedy knows, like, okay, that's the bar is probably set highest in New York. I don't think comedy comedians in other cities would argue that for stand up. And you got to be out there multiple nights a week. So I was living a life where I would be home during the day a lot, but it's like, okay, like three or four nights a week, I might be out doing shows to practice my set. And then and then I need to fly out to Minneapolis and do a club Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Right. And that's a weird lifestyle. But if you want to be good and you want to keep up, and I'll tell you what, doing three or four nights a week by the standards of a New York standup is about, like many would regard that as phoning it in. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. So how many sets should you be doing a week under that standard? Well, I would go out and generally limit it to like two sets a night maybe wow. three and then try to do that two to three nights a week. So I'd be doing like five, six, seven sets, but there are comedians who I'm telling you, no joke, will do seven, eight, nine, even 10 sets a night. Wow. Um, the people who do 10 what? sets a night, I, I think it's viewed as a little pathological and maybe counterproductive for most people. Cause what, like, what are you writing your jokes about if all you're doing is telling jokes. Ah, You have to live a little life. But I think the standard would be a lot of people doing, I would say that a hardworking New York comedian of a high level, who's like still fighting to establish their own fan base that they can, you know, I'm now at a point where I'm lucky where I can do a little less and still reliably sell tickets on the road. But I would think the people who are like fighting to get their sea legs and get to that point, which I, I was for so many years, will do 12, 13, 14 sets a week. Wow. Yeah. How long are these sets? These are usually 15 to 20 minutes. And it's like open mics or or like some of these scheduled like, you know, in advance. Well, yeah. I mean, it's when you're starting out, it's open mics. Those people jump around and do as many as you can. But those are also situations where, you know, you might show up and put your name in a bucket and then have to wait two or three hours and then go, where's the next open mic? And one of the other comics tells you and you pray that it's another good one. Once you get up and running, there's kind of two types of shows in New York. There's, you know, club sets and um, like independent shows and kind of follows the music model in certain ways. Like the independent shows are always where I thrived more. You can be a little slower paced at a lot of them, especially in Brooklyn. 
You can like tell a story and it doesn't need to be punchline, punchline, punchline. Right, right. Clubs are a little bit more, you know, two drink minimum. People are spending a decent chunk of change. Like you got the tickets and the two drinks, two drinks for your date. You're probably spending 80, 90 bucks right there. Yeah. And you got to bring it. And the, you know, and the clubs are funny because a lot of people go, okay, I have a set at Stand Up New York and now I'm going to bounce down to Gotham Comedy Club and then I'll go over to the Comedy Cellar and the, and you know, and I always admired the people the most. There were, it was really when I was coming up, I was an improviser first. And when I was switching over to stand up, uh, Mike Berbiglia and John Mulaney were the two guys where I would go, man, like those guys will start out and do a set at a club and then they'll come up and do some weird storytelling show at UCB that I'm on. And then they tell me they got to go run because they got to catch a cab out to South Brooklyn to do some like storytelling show that's being recorded for NPR and then they'll jump up to Bush- Bushwick and do a basement show for like yeah, a bunch of wow. like super Bushwicky kids. And <laughs> I always looked at that as like, I don't ever want to just settle into one type. I want to know that I can go anywhere at any time and do what I do. So uh, I-, I was always a weird outlier. I think that way, or not a weird outlier, but uh, um, I think a lot of the Brooklyn, uh, a lot of the alt, they call them alt comedians and the club comedians <laughs> right. don't really like each other. And yeah. I was someone who dwelled in both worlds. I was wondering about that because when you describe this, you know, I know mainly by watching like, you know, TV and films, I know something about what like the behind the scenes of comedy is. I don't have much uh, personal stories about it, but it seems where it could be really similar to music and the fact that there's, you know, so many people doing it mostly DIY, investing so much into it, going to these places like you said, waiting two, three hours. I'm sure there's like a whole lot of co-mingling with the other comedians and, you know, talking about what you're going to do. And it's interesting that it seems just like music, there would be the opportunity to get bitter and jealous and start to, you know, try to get more for yourself. But then there's also the opportunity to like make it communal and you know, and, and create some kind of community inside of it. So I know that's something you actively try to do. Do you think like your punk rock, like roots in that way, were maybe some of the impetus for that? Yeah. Yeah. I I came up at the UCB theater, which is when it started, it was. It's upright citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I started there in 2000 and if you're a comedy fan, you probably know around 2004, 2005, they started, it became a launching pad to a lot of people getting on SNL and The Daily Show and writing staffs and sitcoms. What kind of and, people were involved at that time? Um, like Amy Poehler owned the theater and oh, wow. like my, probably my two best friends coming up were Bobby Moynihan, who wound up on SNL forever. And then mm-hmm. Zach Woods, who was on the office as Gabe and then Silicon Valley. And like, those were my two best buddies. Like we were just doing shows and then going to a bar afterwards and shooting the shit and having fun. So you can see like similar to music scenes, right? Where it's like, Oh, you have a local scene and everybody's getting along. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, my friends just got signed to Columbia (laughs) record. Like, you know, and you're like, Oh, all of a sudden it's not, 
it's not just, you know, the, it, it, I know we're both Jersey guys. It's like, oh, it's not just Don Giovanni anymore, you know, like, <laughs> it's pretty, you know, Waxahachie's on Merge yeah, now. Like, I'm sure that was right. a conversation for, I'm, I put yeah. my albums out with them, so I'm, I'm not speaking, yeah, yeah. I'm not quoting anyone, but I'm sure that creates For a, sure, for sure. UCB yeah. was that in a big way, but uh, I walked a very strange path where I, for years, was the guy that people were saying, oh, you're going to be the next one. You're like crushing it in this environment. And I just kept missing. And it actually, I was actually, so I finally booked a a role on a sitcom on Comedy Central. And people were like flipping out in a way where I was like, this is weird because a lot of my friends have gotten good jobs. But I realized that entire community was starting to view me as like a semi-tragic figure. Oh, um, I had, oh, oh, I see. I had a, I had these two friends who wrote on the Colbert Report at the time, and and uh, I did shows with them all the time. And they pulled me aside, and they were like, "There have been discussions in the writers' room at Colbert about why can't this guy get a job?" And I had actually someone at the theater who was coming up after me pulled me aside and was like. I was thinking about quitting because I was like, if you can't get a job, I definitely am not good enough to do this. Like, it, like if if the bar is wow. set where you can't get over it, I was like, oh, that's depressing that's, to hear. Yeah, that's a strange position to be in, yeah. Absolutely. And then the <laughs> yeah. twist is that the sitcom ate it. It bombed okay. so hard. The reviews were so bad. Wait, they, what was that? What was that called? It was called Big Lake. And if you... If you Google it, you will see a lot of what comes up is this story about how the guy who played Napoleon Dynamite quit right before they were about to start shooting. And instead of shutting down the show, they said, let's just find, um, let's just like find a comedian on the come up. So I think they only auditioned 10 people and they were all kind of similar to me of like New York and LA comedians from the alt scene who were really close and kind of known for it. And I got it. And there's a lot of romance to that story. And there was press where there's like a New York Times profile that was like, I never forgot the title, The Unlikely Pressure of Being a Sitcom Star. And it's all about like, all right, this guy jumped in and in New York, you probably know him if you like comedy. And now the pressure's on him. And I'm reading it like, I got this job four days before he started shooting. Like, Right, thanks for setting that bar for me. And (laughs) I took it on the chin in the reviews and I'm like, there's a there's like a whole massive team of people behind a TV show and right yeah. I'm the public face of it on no notice so that was the thing that made me start really that brought my punk rock roots back to life because I mean you know better than anybody like the 90s in New Jersey were this really incredible time to be a yeah. teenager who liked underground music because That's a fact, yeah yeah, and it, you know, you look back, you're like, MTV was so huge. Yeah, but it was no longer cool. like it was no longer like Gilbert Gottfried fucking with people on the boardwalk, like and like weird. Like it was getting really like it was becoming yeah, it was, a big turnoff to a lot of us, and then totally irrelevant to to people from our world. Yeah, and then this massive reaction to it where you go. Like my older brother, the first ever show my brother took me to was in the basement of a church. That's the first time I saw live music. I was, I think, 13 years old watching um, Felix Frump, One Nature, yes. and uh, <laughs> and then Missing Children, which the lead singer yeah. was Frank, who went on to be in The Degenerates. Like these were- Yeah, sure. Local. One Nature was was like my band. They were from Bridgewater. 
Oh, were so they, they were like Boundbrook. They were Bridgewater. I, I mixed yeah, it up they with were the bo- B. Maybe both, actually. Yeah, maybe both. Because Boundbrook's right across 22 there. So they, they were like a both. headliner, right? They were like oh, a headliner were, in the local scene. And that guy, they when were, he, they he were gods go, to me. Oh, uh, and when you watched yeah. them live, you thought that guy was having seizures, man. Like, oh my God, I was never saw anything like it. Mark Mulvihill is his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, someone sent me a zip drive of everything they ever put out and I still listen to it and I still think those songs are good. I had yeah, their seven too. inch, so. They're really onto something. And Felix Frump, who the singer ended up being the first singer of Ensign. Oh, so, yeah. Important show. What what uh, what town was that in? That was in my hometown of West Orange. I had um, okay. My older brother's friends put out a fanzine. The Gregulator. Did I read the Gregulator? Indeed, yeah. the Gregulator and uh, <laughs> Marsha fanzine. Like kind of established our friend group as having like a little clout, and then there was a store on Bloomfield Avenue in Montclair that was actually walking distance, like a long walk from my house. But it was this little punk record store that this like guy from the you know the the previous generations of punk ran yeah and wait what was everything. that one called again let it rock let it rock yes I yeah totally remember that yeah and if you grew I was one up of in, like the big three in new jersey at the time yeah. let, it, let it rock vintage vinyl and curmudgeon yeah and curmudgeon that's right that and uh, probably princeton record exchange for some yeah, people too sure. but that the was a little staple. bit more that was a little bit more if you knew about like college rock and WFMU, you know? Yeah, or Steely Dan. Yeah. Exactly. It had it all. Yeah. And yeah. you'd go to Let It Rock and there'd be show flyers up and you'd go like, and it f- all felt so far away, right? Like, right. you'd be like, oh, there's a show in Wayne. And that yeah, felt like you- going into like fucking Mordor, you know? Like, <laughs> Right. It was terrifying, right? <laughs> anytime. That's another thing that makes me laugh. And I know we're just now off on tangents, but... Oh, who cares, man? Yeah. Uh, you know, another thing that makes me really, really happy is that when, you know, because I dove really deep into comedy and then the Big Lake experience, right? it redefined my life because I'm sitting here going, this is not hurting that much. This should be hurting me more. Reading these things huh. about myself, getting buried, yeah. like Comedy Central airing the show on a different night each week, so people <laughs> right, can't right. find it. Like they didn't even want people to see it. Yeah. Um, but I'm sitting here going, "Why doesn't it hurt so much?" And I'm going, "Because my comedy's always been weird. This was a standard sitcom. I don't even watch sitcoms. Why am I mad? I grew up on Andy Kaufman and David Letterman and Howard yeah. Stern and all these troublemakers who were the comedy version." of going to a show at the American Legion Hall or or the Booten Elks Lodge or Skaters yeah, World. Like sure. that's, they had, they reminded me of that. And I go, man, like if I, if I want to, if I want to really, like I, like I was saying before, the, the Jersey scene when you were a teenager in the nineties was mobilized. Like you'd be going to these shows at these places I, na- I named and I was 15, but the people booking the hall were maybe 18, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But they felt like, they felt like 46. The they, yeah. they felt like they had it all figured out. Like I bet when <laughs> yeah, you and I were watching yeah. Mark Mulvihill, if he was 23 at the time, I, I think he was probably still in his teens when I was like yeah. idolizing him at that first show. I would say, yeah. Uh-huh. And then you think about it, you're like, man, these are kids who are figuring out how to get insurance sometimes. Like some of these <laughs> right. venues are like, well, you need a fire marshal. And they're like, yeah, yeah. okay, I'm, I'll go get, take a class. And you just realize like it was so mobilized and I, I had that in me. 
Hmm. And uh, that's why I built the public access show. I was, it was like so many people were embarrassed for me. Like I went from being a sitcom lead to a public access host. And it was less than a year to the point where my friend who worked on the show with me the whole time directed all of it from public access through cable. A, a, a person before he, he had, he was like, yeah, I'll come build a public access show with you. That cool. That sounds cool. And another guy who was a friend of mine who I used to actually work with a lot, pulled him aside and was like, don't do this. Like, Wow. Really? Th- don't, don't associate yourself with this. This is, you, this is, this like reeks of <laughs> failure basically. Wow. Yeah. I've had the same story actually. Um, it's interesting though, the way you like now, when you were, were going through that experience, um, you know, because like, was there any aspect of between like your punk rock guilt and someone who runs on the side of, you know, being depressed more than the other side? Um, like, was there any part of you that was maybe like internally, uh, you know, pleased or relieved to to be, you know, the one who got out of the mainstream <laughs> experiment and create like, uh, like, is there like a sardonic part of you that's actually like, yeah, fuck yeah, that's really me or something? I will tell you something is that the public access show it got a lot of press for being like the underground show. And I'm not trying to brag about that. It's just a thing that it's also canceled. So now I look back on it and (laughs) in 10 years, that show, we put that show on public access 10 years ago. No one has ever asked me that question. And it is the most astute observation. (laughs) Um, And I'm, I'm actually shocked that no one ever asked if I found it kind of like gleeful. I certainly found it motivating, but I've always walked this weird line of going, man, it stresses me out that I've never managed after all, you know, 20 years, 21 years now in comedy, I've never found something that's like consistent and reliable with a long shelf life that is popular, you know, like that's how comedians make health insurance. They eventually get a writing job or an acting job on a stable show. Right. Sometimes I get stressed out, but then I also sit here and go, I've done pretty well for a guy who has actively actively just never moved to LA kind of just to <laughs> see if I could pull it off not having to do it has actually moved an hour and change west into New Jersey like <laughs> right. I'm not Montclair Maplewood like the rest of the Yeah artists, you're off you the know? train right yeah uh, Yeah I'm like I, I'm a 20 minute drive from the train which if you're trying to be like in the city all the time that's a tough part. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely a part of me that was like, it's just very astute that you asked me that because there was always a part of me that was like, I don't even fucking watch most TV and I'm sitting, <laughs> right. I'm going to sit here and fight to be on it. That feels so lame. Yeah. And when I started actually managing to cobble together a living, just doing the stuff I wanted, I sat there and I'm like, it, it did feel a little bit like being one of those bands that never had to leave the label they started with, you know? Right, 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 right. Like you're the 20 year sub pop band or something. Yeah. And, and it's, it's no joke that like, I, I, discord in particular, I always looked at them and went, when, when every, any, cause minor threat was just so huge for me starting in high school. And I still think those songs hold up. Me too. And, 
Ian in particular, you look at him and you go, he just was vocal about his ethics from the start and seemingly is a good guy and really did just go, I'm, I just, I laid out my ethics when I was a kid and I still think they're true and I'm going to stick with them. And you go, right. Geez, man, like there's a massive example of someone who laid it out and then did it. And uh, it takes a certain personality though, right? Because it's almost yeah. the idea that you can have an idea and be 100% with that idea unsupported by anyone else. There, There's like a truly agreeable or communal person can't do that because they care too much about, you know, what other people think. And I think to, to go off on your own like that and to be so rogue and to have such a consistent vision, I think you almost inherently have to have like some part of you as a disagreeable person. And I don't mean that as like someone who's hard to get along with, but someone who maybe like, you know, has a lot of acquaintances and not a lot of friends or something like that, you know, which also does sadly describe me. I mean, <laughs> me too, honestly. Well, it's an interesting thing. Cause even, you know, aside from that, the, the show, it seems to be sort of like a theme to your whole career arc is like, if, if I listened to you talk and watched what you were doing, they would seem mutually exclusive to me because when I hear you talk, it's like, oh, yeah, I was like going to be this person and then it didn't happen. And it's sort of a little bit of a, you know, a dark way of looking at it. But then I look at all the choices you make for your career and I see someone who is very obviously almost like trying not to be that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, uh, like... I know you didn't for sure. You didn't like shoot yourself in the foot. Cause I know you were trying really hard to make that work. I mean, did, did you come to any sort of uh, conclusions about that when, when you switched to, to cable? Like, was that almost like you're uh, jumping from an indie to a major label and yes. getting like the true taste of, of <laughs> what it's all about? Yes, it was. And okay. there, there were a lot of fans of the public access show who were mad about it. And I remember immediately thinking, Oh, this must be how jawbreaker felt. Exactly. You know? like, exactly. Like, <laughs> must <course>. be... <laughs> and I've actually become friendly with Adam uh, Fowler because I actually okay. wrote an article about Jay church who was like, yeah, yeah. From that same scene, but not really kind of not really remembered now yeah as Great well band, as though. they should be amazing band yeah um but yeah it was like the same thing you saw in their documentary where they were like we couldn't do it forever so we figured why not just try and see if it can keep going and see if it sounds better and like uh, blake in the documentary i remember his quotes like i just kind of wanted people to be able to understand my lyrics and have it <laughs> yeah, recorded right. well yeah, enough yeah. yeah yeah there is a part the most of me, honest of intentions yeah yeah and like them yeah. being like we were kind of stressing each other out and this band was not gonna last so why not and very very similar thing of like you know like i think 
some of the fans didn't realize, like I started the public access show. I was already 31 years old, you know? And Mm, you got at, at a certain point in your thirties, you do sadly have to go. I would like to have a child at some point. Right. I would like, you gotta get that healthcare. Yeah. I gotta get healthcare. (laughs) I gotta, I gotta see if I can make that kid happen. And then if I do, I'm, I'm old enough to be aware, like he's got to live a life that's, healthy and stable and that takes money because we're in a weird capitalist society so plus one of the things there's there's two things that i that i that make me really firmly okay with the decision to to make that leap and even though we compromised the show so majorly and it had many places where i had to fight in a way that was really kind of breaking my spirit and my mental health but there's two things you mean like you were creatively like fighting just getting notes from people who they would all you know we we wound up on two different networks and they would both look at the fact that we had a cult audience and a lot of press and and we would get good guests because a lot of comedians like i said like i knew a lot of comedians who had gone on to big things and even the ones i didn't know they started in comedy, which means when they started, it was like fucked up open mics and experimental jokes and things going wrong. And our show actually was that on TV. So they got to mm, right. feel that actual in the trenches comedy vibe. But I, uh, they never, you know, they picked it up because of the press and the guests and the, the cult fan base, but they never actually understood why it worked because how could you unless you were on the inside of that show the show is insane mm, right, uh, right so they'd give us just tons of notes and true tv in particular there were times where they'd keep us on and give us four hours of notes on an outline we turned in for an episode that hadn't even happened yet it's like yikes at a certain point if you commit to doing a live show you kind of have to just let us go fail live <laughs> and then give us notes afterwards and right. maybe we'll surprise you and succeed but crushing us with notes is is only going to put us in our heads and make the whole thing feel weird. So did you often or ever weird. find them the notes like useful? Um there were a handful that definitely saved an episode or like pointed out a blind spot that I'm glad I didn't walk into but by and large <laughs> no Okay. By and large, I would say ninety eight percent of the notes. I was just like, "Come on, like let us yeah, just go yeah. do it." And like, so much of people in a chain of command having to give notes just to just yeah. so they could turn to their boss and right. be like, "Yeah, this has my fingerprints on it." Exactly. And I'm telling everyone's you, everyone's trying to keep their jobs, right? <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. And then this is not a lie. When we were on the Fusion Network for two seasons, we wound up getting intense fights with some of the people there and it was everyone hated like we didn't like having to fight them they didn't like having to constantly try to wrangle us yeah and in two seasons when you go back and watch the fusion show it's really really funny their network is a lot of like culturally conscious documentaries mostly so they were like can you tie every episode into a social issue and we were like oh god yeah. we can try like we do care yeah. a lot about things but there's only so much you can do with a comedy show like yeah and, and there's actually one episode that jeff rosenstock played with his band uh-huh. and the whole audience is dogs and when his band <laughs> is playing they're all dressed as dogs oh that's and great yeah, and and we actually convinced the Fusion Network, and and 
let me be clear. I am not rolling my eyes at the idea of inclusivity. In fact, I think our show was was wildly inclusive, mm-hmm. but they wanted to say this show is about blank. And which oh, I actually think right. is a very performative form of progressivism. I actually feel right. like I see. Right. that's saying, hey, we're going to be able to slap a hello, my name is body right. image issues episode, sure. which is like, or we can just let me talk about how I don't watch my own episodes because I'm actually, I'm, I'm so self-conscious about my physical appearance. Or we could talk mm-hmm. about how um, two of my co-hosts are women and not, you know, and, and we're never, and like, we once had a network tell me they would pick up the show if I fired the co-host and hired Olivia Munn. Uh, Get the who's fuck a, out Yeah, of man. Like oh things like God. that. Like yeah. things like that where I'm like, we actually really are kind of doing some progressive yeah, things. Like right. there was no female presence on late night TV while we were on. Sure. It's Our like, I'm not had, playing a freak. I'm actually no. a freak, guys. Yeah. So with the dogs <laughs> episode, we actually t- had to fusion. We actually convinced them we want our show to be the most inclusive show in late night. Okay. So we are going to have an audience full of dogs to prove that <laughs> we are willing to extend an open, safe environment to anyone who wants to show up in this audience, even animals. And they were like, oh, that's amazing. It ties in with animal rights and inclusivity. It's like, guys, or you can just let us have this show that all these kids are attracted to because it already is what you're giving us, slamming us. Anyway, it was, it was yeah. bad, but I, I still am proud of it. Like I was saying, two reasons, which is one, a large percentage of the staff of the show on cable were people who stuck with it through public access. And for a lot of those people, it was their first legitimate job in entertainment. So I sit there, I go, this thing's supporting like an 80 person staff who have jobs in the field they want to break into. And they wouldn't have them if this show wasn't around. And, And a lot of them have managed to keep going. And then the other thing, the great joy of going to cable was that I got to finally hire writers and pay them. Ah, And... Before it was woke, before it was a buzzword, I had people in my writer's room. I had every type of person. I had I had I had someone who immigrated to the country. I had queer people. I had people all different ethnicities. We made such an effort. And it wasn't to be woke. It was to it was because I knew from being in the comedy scene, like I already I already know what it's like to be a white dude with glasses from the suburbs. And a a few of the people I've hired who worked with me on public access are also that, like we got enough of that. Yeah. And there's certain ideas I can't do. I don't have a right to tackle certain things, but I want to tackle them. So if I can put a writer as the point person to write this episode and even appear on it, we can just do a lot more, which I think is actually the point of why people want to diversify the entertainment industry. Like it shouldn't be about quotas. It should be like, we had an episode where we booked Lena Dunham as a guest and and we would always say, are there any ideas you want to do? And and almost always they'd be like, yeah, just throw something at me, throw mm-hmm. a couple ideas at me. Lena Dunham goes, I've always want to play. I've always wanted to play a mermaid. And <laughs> okay. My friend Julio was writing on our show. Julio Torres, who you might know from, he had a, HBO special called My Favorite Shapes. He has a show called Los oh, Spookies yeah. on NHBO. Uh-huh. And, yeah, very cool. Yeah. And it was our second job. And he is, you know, uh, he is 
he is queer and he is, he is, his brain really thinks differently. And he just went, I want Lena Dunham to dress up as a mermaid and I want to have an undersea themed prom. And I want the prom to specifically invite, I want us to specifically have the audience actually participate in a prom where we say we want it to be gender fluid and invite everybody because he's like growing up for most of us going to a high school prom is actually a really terrifying thing Yeah, when you are not straight, whatever, wherever you land on the spectrum. And I was like, this, how could I ever have a right to do this idea? I wouldn't even think of it. And then you do it and it's fucking cool. And we got some things right. We got some things wrong, but so I'm really proud of that. You know, I'm proud that I was able to hire people and do it the right way. I was proud that I got to bring along a crew that, that broke into entertainment. So Sometimes people go, man, your your public ac- your 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 public access episodes were so much fucking better. You sell out, and I'm like, well, I also, how can I regret it? Even though the show didn't end great, you know. And plus, everybody's favorite episode, they forget. We did this That's dumpster it. episode. Everybody talks about. People think it was a public access episode. It was on the Fusion Network. Everybody's mm. favorite episode was a cable one, anyway. So right. Uh, oh, and the same people telling you you sold out ten years from now are gonna say that the one on the network was better, just like they're all Dear You fans now. I love you know? Dear You. I do yeah. love Dear You. <laughs> Come on, it's the best. It's so obviously the best record. It's just like, it's it's silly to even counter-argue, I think. Wow, you'll say it's actually Because I feel like everybody's like 24-hour, man. Like that I'm talking just, albums here. Like 24 hours, it's a fun record. It does but have you, Boxcar and Jinx removing. Like, it's no joke. But that's the thing is like, Dear You to Me is a top to bottom album. The other it's ones are great. like, they're albums with great songs on them and some songs I don't give a shit about. So that's where I think Dear You is like overall just a more complete record, you know? I, you, but, I am with you. I am with you. And uh, I remember let's be, when... Let's be I bold, remember, you know? I, to say that it is silly to argue that 24-hour revenge therapy <laughs> is even maybe in the conversation of which one's better, I think is very bold. But I'm trying do, to piss off some best. aggregators, Chris. Yeah, you know? I love Let's it. Let's go for it. Let's... I remember when my wife and I started dating and we were listening to Dear You in the car once and I was singing along to um, Oyster and Chemistry and she was like, you know the lyrics to these ones? And I was like, this album rules. <laughs> I love those songs. And that's when she fell in love. I think so. Probably the moment. She did also at some point tell me, we have to stop listening to only Jawbreaker and Jay Church when we're on road trips. Like I need to listen (laughs) to something besides 90s Bay Area punk. (laughs) Chris, I have a fun pivot I want to take. Are you down? I've been rambling way too much. I feel bad. No, this is literally called going off track. True. I forgot. And Brad and I are neither journalists (laughs) nor entertainers. This is just, this is for fun, man. I'm having fun. Um, So you're normally the guy uh, quizzing people about New Jersey, the the Jersey, uh, you know, the Jersey flag man, as as you are. You're very you're wearing it on your sleeve these days, which I much greatly appreciate. Actively Um, trying to be come to actively trying to have my obituary refer to me as the comedy Springsteen in relation to New Jersey. Oh, my God. (laughs) Active goal. Keep putting that out into the world. It'll happen. So so what I'm going to do is I came up with a little Jersey quiz for you. Wow. You could expose okay. me as a fraud right now. I have 10 questions. Mm-hmm. 
And I broke it down. Some of them are pretty tough. So I'm not going to say that like you're not from New Jersey if you don't get all of them. I'd say if you get like five out of 10, I'll be happy. If you get like seven out of 10, I'll be really impressed. And there's a few I'll be shocked if you know. Okay. Okay. Wow. I hope I don't get three. Do you want to start with some softballs or or yeah, the tough let's ones? let's start with the softballs so I can warm my brain up. Okay, where is Tony Soprano's house located? In the in the I think it is the same shooting location and town. It's North Caldwell, right? That's right. It is Caldwell. Maybe West, but who knows? Caldwell should just be one town. It's not very big. Yeah, North Caldwell's okay. the Richie Rich section. So I always. Had that right, in my brain. and you're an orange guy, so I know if there's any town that uh, gets very different based on east, west, and south, oh, it's where I you're in, from. I was in West Orange. I was in West yeah. Orange, and and Orange and East Orange were much tougher. But I was yeah. also down the hill West Orange, which was the tougher part of West Orange, which is not saying much compared to Orange or East Orange. I mean, East Orange is about one of the hardest places I'd say in America. So, oh uh, yeah, it's yeah. A tough town, tough yeah. town. All right, so you got one so far. Who wrote the theme song from a New Brunswick basement show? Oh, Lifetime. Okay, very well. Here's my softballs. Which New Jersey town is the oldest seaside resort in the U.S.? Oh. This is the first one that I'm having to make an educated guess. Okay. There's a few ways to think of us of this. There's three things going through my mind. Okay, what are those? It's either uh, it's it could be Atlantic City just because it's Atlantic City, right? Mm-hmm. And then it comes down to, is it a place that is a resort because it had access to the cities or is it a place that's super remote? Mm, this is that the answer to that question answers this question. Right, right, right. So I'm, I'm at least narrowing it down. It's, uh, I'm going to say it's either Atlantic City, Cape May, or I would think Asbury Park because it's very Northern and access to, to New York City. Mm. But I might say, I might, uh, it's just so hard. My gut is saying Cape May, but it's so hard to get to it, especially back in the day. You know what I say, Chris? Yeah. Don't listen to your mind. Don't listen listen to the old belly. Listen to the old belly. Cape May. Then I'll say Cape May. It is Cape May. Nice. You see the powers of deduction there? That's it. That was good. I I was impressed with because most people would, would take the tact of like, uh, maybe this. I really, really appreciate the kind of thought you just put into it. And it also proves to me how much this place means to you. So yeah, I'm, and you're tugging at my heartstrings just by giving it that much attention. I also you know? appreciate that you you witnessed me putting in the work and said, <laughs> okay, this guy deserves a hint based on how this is going. That's very nice of you. <laughs> Well, I am. I am. I'm trying to be a legitimate podcast host here. You know, yeah, yeah, keep yeah, it yeah. running, killing it. You're All crushing right. it. All right, so let's get a little tougher now. Mm-hmm. What is the state motto of New Jersey? Oh, like the one on the flag in Latin. I is believe so. Yeah, I think I it's think, in both. 
I can see. Oh. I knew this at one point. I can't pretend. I don't know it. What yeah. is the unofficial state motto of Jersey? <laughs> the I unofficial think? state motto is probably like, <laughs> get the fuck, get the fuck out, out, of out of the left lane, you <laughs> fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Correct. Oh, do you put fucking sugar in your sauce? <laughs> um, yeah, something like that, maybe. Uh, so it's a super cliche one. Liberty and prosperity. Liberty. I uh, should have yeah. known that. Always something like that. Okay. Mm. All right. So you bit it on that one. Now, let's go back, because now you can use your powers of deduction again. Yeah. Which town can claim the origins of saltwater taffy? I just did a fucking episode. Oh, that's, Atl- uh, that's Atlantic City. It is. Nailed yeah, it. Okay. that's Atlantic Good. City. That's we Atlantic just did an episode City. of my podcast on, uh, on saltwater taffy. On the, oh, New Jersey nice. is the, the New Jersey <laughs> is the World podcast. Yes, that's Atlantic Good. City. So known for saltwater taffy and... Uh, forcing a horse to jump off a diving board for about 50 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was fun. Okay, so we're up to four. You're doing well. Um, now, here's one that hits local for you, okay? In the okay. late 1800s, West Orange had 34 of these factories and was commonly known as the capital of the country for such products. <sighs> This has to be the Thomas Edison factories. So a lot of people would think light bulbs, but I think that was more out of his Menlo Park facility. And those factories were actually in my neighborhood. My mom, my mom's childhood home was demolished when those factories expanded. And if, uh, if I remember right, those factories primarily after a certain point produced batteries. Okay. Batteries, so I, final answer? I think so. All right. Well, it turns out it's hats. Oh, hats. West, I always thought that was orange, not West Orange. Apparently, it's on the West Orange Wikipedia. I know it's not always correct, but wow. apparently 34 I, I, hat factories simultaneously running in the late 1800s and known as the hat capital of america at that time i always associated orange with the hat and with the uh, watch faces the glow in the dark watch faces oh are you a hat man i'm not i uh <laughs> well now that my hairline's starting to go i'm leaning into them more so i will be i will be will be a hat man soon. headed there yeah <laughs> all right let's keep going now in what year did your alma mater play the first intercollegiate college football game against Princeton. Oh. Too tough. That's really tough. Um, I wish I could give you something else that happened on this year, but I, just, uh, I'm i not a history buff. Oh, I thought you... So it's not another year that's notable in history then. You're not saying <laughs> it that. It may be, but you I'm probably have, the wrong person right. to ask. Uh, let's take a guess and say 18... Or no? Uh-huh. Yes. Let's say 1887. <laughs> okay. 1869. Should have gone with the funny answer. 1869. <laughs> yeah. What Sweet all else joke. fails, bro? Rutgers and Princeton were on top of each other. Um, <laughs> all right. Now, 
What is this is just bizarre. And I just wanted to talk about it because I had no idea that we even had this. The official state dinosaur of New Jersey is what? <laughs> Interesting question. Did you know we had one of these? I didn't. But. <laughs> and it's not Bruce Springsteen. They have a Tyrannosaurus in the Morris Museum. Of I'll give you Town. one hint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the uh, name of the dinosaur, like the actual scientific name of it, is based on the town that they found it. And this town is not in North Jersey. No, it's, it's, uh, I do know this. If I remember right, it's based on Haddonfield. Whoa. It's so it's like the, uh, it's like the Hadrosaurus or something like that. Yeah. I knew that. No way. Come on. Come on. I promise you, I'm not sitting here Googling people. It's the Haddonfield. Yeah. I knew it was Haddonfield. That is really impressive. Okay. So the, you got it exactly. The Hadrosaurus Fulci was a duck-billed dinosaur that roamed the forests and swamps along the bays of New Jersey's prehistoric seacoast. All right. Look now, this that. is an even funner explanation. You're the only one I think would care about this, but I'm still going to read it. From New Jersey's official website, it says, in the summer of 1858, Victorian gentleman and fossil hobbyist William Parker Folk was vacationing in Haddonfield the beautiful vacation town of Haddonfield, Mm -hmm. when he heard that 20 years previous workers had found gigantic bones in a local marl pit. He spent the late summer and fall directing a crew of hired diggers. Eventually, he found the bones larger than an elephant, the structural features of both a lizard and a bird. So is uh, a Victorian gentleman who happened to be uh, vacationing in Haddonfield who, who took the credit for this. I'm wondering who found it 20 years prior that he didn't give credit to, though. I, uh, I'm just going to pat myself on the back and say I don't know how many I've gotten right, and I was hoping to get up to that impressive seven or eight, but either way, I think oh, I, yeah. I think the Haddonfield grab, <laughs> I, I'm proud of that one. Let me just You've earned that. your stripes regardless. For was sure. that question number 10? It was, was not. 10, we have 10? one more. Okay. Okay. What was the original location and name of the New Jersey Devils? Oh. I the hockey team? Yeah. I feel like this is trick question. I feel like this is a trick question. It's not. It is not a trick question. I was shocked to find out when I did as well uh years ago. I'll give you a hint on this one too. The name of the original New Jersey Devils is currently the uh, state and team name of an active Major League Baseball team. What? The hockey team used to have the same name as a baseball team? (laughs) This is wild. (laughs) Um, I have no idea. I have no idea. They were the Colorado Rockies. At one point. Oh, so they moved from Colorado to New Jersey. Yeah. So they're initially, they're one of those visiting squads. Yeah. I was thinking about it wrong. I was thinking that they used to be like the New Jersey blanks and change the name. I got it. Got you. Got you. I was thinking about it wrong. How'd I do? 
You got five of ten, but okay. like I said, okay. the dinosaur alone. I mean, come on. I should I mean, have gotten so, liberty and prosperity, though. I should have gotten. But listen, that. this wasn't really about the answers, Chris. This was about you and I just going on a little historical tour of New Jersey together here. You know, it was about learning. It was about knowledge. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Somerville, and then uh-huh. eventually Bridgewater area. Uh huh. I know it well. Great mall. Solid mall. I spent a lot of time there at Surfside's Buds. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I did about a decade in the New Brunswick Highland Park area, then a decade mm-hmm. in Jersey City. And now I'm like six months into the uh, suburban forest. I love it. And what wait, what years were you in New Brunswick? Uh, I moved there in late 97. And I was there until... I mean, basically around the time Gaslight went full time. So it was somewhere around like 06. Uh, I started just kind of crashing around there. We were certainly, we are the same exact age. and I was there 98 to 02. Yeah, we were in New Brunswick at the same exact time. There's no chance we didn't party. For sure. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, I actually imagine that you don't happen to know the guys who used to live in the... 11 Robinson house. Do you? I don't, but I heard about the tales. So from, from me or around New Brunswick? No. It, so, it was a cracked so in, out fucked yeah, up place, but I loved it. In an effort to find out more about you, I contacted someone who knows you. I usually use this stuff for a segment called mystery friend, but for the second time, this person didn't give me a story acute enough to, to actually use as a mystery friend. <laughs> But okay. I spoke with an old buddy of yours, Kevin Bannon. Oh, who, yes. Who's the who, one who gave me the one nature zip file. That makes perfect sense because ah. Kevin Bannon and I went to high school together in Bridgewater and we're old friends. Mm-hmm. So he told me about a guy named Dave Salerno who was Dirty some Dave. Of, a punk poet of some sort. He who was. Drink he, 40s and just like literary, you know, like knock you yeah. on the head with literary references. Absolutely. Some night with skinheads dancing to the smiths oh yeah um, you dave know, like- too i hope dave doesn't get mad at me for saying this but legendary his his room was actually the upstairs living room of their house so we all used to right. just sit in there and his bed was in the corner and he like many college he has never changed his sheets to the point where there was an outline of his body on the sheets. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know who else you probably know who lived there was tim from plan a project oh okay if you remember that band. Loosely, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, it's so funny. So so in those years, were you like a dorm guy? Did you live off campus? Like, I, I only lived in the dorms my freshman year. Then I lived at 203 Hamilton Street, which is right across from Tata's Pizza. Mm. Um, and then I lived at 214 Somerset Street, which is right at the corner of Plum across from the church. The The building I lived in was... Only a few years after I moved out was condemned and knocked yeah. down. I yeah, think it's a parking garage. Yeah, I think it's a parking garage for that the hospital now. But I did hear at one point that uh, Marissa from Screaming Females has a, a mural up on the wall that used to be on my old corner. And then um, I lived at 26 Hartwell Street. But we definitely, okay. like you have to know FID, right? Oh, of course. Fid's an yeah. old buddy. I, I mean, performed at the time, Fid's marriage. I was the reverend for his marriage. No way. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. I yeah. know Roe as well. Yeah, no, I'm and 
I, at the time, I was playing in a band called The Low End Theory. Who was oh, doing a, of course, doing a lot of New Brunswick shows. So actually, when you were talking about uh, how you watched like you know Berbiglia and John Mulaney like do that, I had gone through the same thing in New Brunswick with. A lot of you know the bands from that time who oh, were like breaking mid, out of New Brunswick, Midtown, and yeah, yeah, it saves the day Thursday, yeah. and I was always like, hey, like you know, what's wrong with my bands? Like we're pretty good. Is my singer too weird? You know? I I have even more regrets than you because I dove so <laughs> deep into comedy and started going up to the city to do it, and I I suffered from a depth of depression and, and I really in my mind I, it would have happened anywhere but I really conflated it with New Brunswick mm. so I was like actively not hanging out and not going to shows anymore for me I remember you'll remember this too I feel like for me for some reason when they knocked the melody bar down mm-hmm. I, was kind of when I checked out on music and I probably hadn't discovered the basement scene fully by that time. And that famous handy street house shut down the yep. year before I got there. So 67, yeah. 67 you know handy street. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is now that you mention it, I had never thought about, you know, uh, the melody shutting down as like something that changed. But when you talk, even chronologically, it makes sense because, uh, there was a overall change in music at that time. That was exactly the time when, um, you know, there was like the big sweep up of, uh, you know, melodic bands and, you know, mm-hmm. emo bands going to majors. And when like, it's kind of that post Green Day offspring when, you know, uh, bigger venues came into play and bands got bigger and the fan base got bigger and, I think around the U.S. and probably around all music markets, there was this kind of like conversion from the underground to the mainstream where everyone kind of had to refine their footing again. Yeah. And I just, I think it was a natural transition point that was at the same time that I was like, I need to get out of New Brunswick and do comedy as much as possible. And this makes me think though, you want to talk about going off track. I wonder based on our shared circle of bands, Uh there is an old band that was, cause I was up in North Jersey where the NJPP scene was really big. Sure. Which was like before Midtown house. That, oh, I never, I don't even think I went there. Um, I was not cool enough probably. <laughs> um, but like before Midtown, it was Humble Beginnings was, was yeah, Gabe's sure. band. And that was like the big band in that scene. That's right. But there was this band who was in that scene, but they weren't from, I don't think they were from totally North Jersey. And they're always this outlier. And I feel like I've talked to other people from around our era who agree with me of like that band should have busted out and it doesn't make oh, sense. I hope so bad. I know who this is. Yeah. Who do you think? I, you know, my first instinct was a band called Penfold. Penfold was really good. Penfold okay. was really good. I feel like Penfold actually probably got more hype than this band. Like oh, people okay. heard of Penfold at least. Do you remember All a band right, called Boxcar? Yes, I do. I do. Always, They're a oh, like melodic punk band, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Always felt like I would watch that band and go, man, they're just a little smarter than all these other pop punk bands. Mm. And I never understood how they didn't kind of get swept up when everything in Jersey was getting swept up. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been in the industries of all of these long enough now to know that it's certainly not always your talent or your 
you know, material that actually oh, yeah. moves you to the next step. You know, I, it's, it's sad to, th- I think, I think that's one thing that's cool about getting older, especially in this industry is, um, being able to recognize that luck that even, you know, even though, you know, you may have not, you know, uh, made it as like a giant success on a cable thing or something like there's still a lot of things that could have gone way worse for you. And, and especially me, I mean, I fell into a great situation eventually. And, um, you know, and I, and I think about how many bands, uh, just made these beautiful records, played these beautiful shows. There was really nothing wrong with them and no reason why they couldn't be what the band right next to them would be besides for dumb fucking luck. Right. Yeah. So much of it's luck. And, and I actually say this with great respect because I've, I've, since I was a kid and seeing what he did for the scene up North have had great respect for him, but it's like Midtown put out a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Doesn't hurt that Gabe is a shockingly attractive. Like he's a beautiful six, five, like biracial. Yeah. Like I look back when I was in high school and I was like, Oh, like any, like, Everyone is on the spectrum to some level of how straight are you? I think anybody who says otherwise is silly. And I'm like, oh, Gabe is probably one of the people who made me realize that everyone questions that at some point. Yeah, he is sure. a beautiful <laughs> human being. And if he hears this, he might feel awkward. But he was also, I'll never forget. I he was a pimp, t- man. He was a pimp. And nice. He was also nice yeah. and took a lot of shit that I think he didn't deserve. Like people were always yeah. like, weird with him but i'll never forget i had checked out of the scene and then one day i was walking down hamilton street and i passed him and he was like hey and i was like what's up man and he was like you used to make that fanzine i was like yeah he's like you were friendly with my brother i was like yeah he's like dude come around the house come say hi come see shows i was like what a nice fucking guy wow. and that's it's actually that's cool. it was actually one of the last things i remember from my tail end of being really in it and then kind of coming back when the erg started that that was the next thing that i found mm-hmm. so exciting was when the erg started to pop off again mm-hmm. i uh i fished a mikey erg for a mystery friend question from you oh, but yeah. i had done it a few weeks back for somebody else and i think he didn't even write me back. I don't think he's stoked That's that, that, that I used him again, maybe pompous, without asking him to be on or something, you know? That pompous, that pompous yeah. asshole. No, he's too bad. He probably just got social oh, anxiety or something like that. Oh, no, yeah. He's probably Why playing. Mikey and I are friends. It's like, dude, I'm recording on three and a half different albums today. Like, so. Well, you know, he was, I bet what it was, honestly, is he in the past month has been recording an album with Steve Albini. I know. I saw that. That's very exciting. He's the best. He is the best. Well, that's really funny. I, I always thought with Gabe and Midtown, you know, I even felt it at the time. It was like Gabe was smart about what he was doing with music. And he seemed to understand something about like organization and presentation that people were not caught up to yet in the scene, you mm-hmm. know, because Midtown showed up you know, their first couple shows with a, a good demo, shirts, they looked good. They sounded right. Like the whole thing was like put together in a way. And I think the looseness of the scene at that time, like almost resented it as too professional or too uh, ambitious, maybe. Right. Um, that's, 
I, I look back, I go, he's very unapologetic mm-hmm. about wanting to do it for real. And I, I do think that that, for all the love I have and for as much as my time spent in the Jersey punk scene saved me in my own artistic field. Yeah. Um, and in a way that people started to find notable of like, oh, this guy actually is not backing down with doing it himself. Like, that's right. Save me. But the Achilles heel of New Jersey artists is this imposter syndrome or this almost, <laughs> right. this almost thing of, the most romantic thing you can do is sort of crash and burn and never right. quite make it. And that, that That's is right. a dialogue that has kept a lot of great artists from where we grew up from actually diving in deep. Oh, a hundred percent. The only way to, to get full respect in New Jersey is to die broke in the town you started. It's true. It's and true. It is, it is strange. It's like, now I heard you mention that on, um, I'm not sure what I think it was an interview. I, it might be pretty well worn, but I know, you know, I, as we said, we had similar backgrounds, you know, in Jersey and our age and the time. And I'm also a very sensitive, empathetic person who doesn't do well with with people uh, people being brutal, you know. Um, and you had mentioned that like toughness is sort of uh, promoted in a Jersey upbringing where not only being tough, but even projecting yourself as tough and handling situations is tough. And, and eventually that gets uh, nailed into you so much that it kind of changes you. And, and, and it changed me eventually. And I think I kind of lost some of this sweetness I had that, that I regret losing. Yeah. And I heard you say something similar and I was wondering now with a kid, are you like, are you trying to get that part of you back? Or is it like just a wash? Well, another another great question. It's uh, so so hard to wrap my brain around because I was I was a late bloomer with huge glasses. My last name spells the word get hard, <laughs> and I grew up in the edge of West Orange that was not always forgiving. Yeah, yeah right. So developing a sense of toughness saved me. Sure, and then I, right. I, th- I think about things that I've accomplished and I go, man, if, if I wasn't taught to have, if I wasn't taught to have a thick skin, if I didn't know how to take a punch, I mean, literally growing up, let alone more metaphorically, it's like, would I have been able to do any of this stuff? So I see mm-hmm. how it served me, but I think what a lot of our generation, I have to imagine I'm not the only parent who grew up where we did, who's going, how do I make sure that my son has those benefits I just listed right? without a having to endure all the bullshit we put each other through in the eighties and Uh nineties when, you know, people would get beat up and no one even got in trouble for it. And it would happen at school, you know, like you'd go to a teacher or an administrator and say, these kids are telling me they're going to jump me. And and they'd literally go, well, where are they going to do it? And you'd go on the in the church parking lot across the street, they're waiting for me to walk home. They go, well, it's not on school grounds. Good luck. Like that was actually being, <laughs> right. that's what it was like being raised in the eighties yeah. and nineties. Yeah. Let alone, up, yeah. Yeah. Let alone that they had us convinced we, anytime we left the house, we we're going to be thrown in a van by a, a molester or a Satanist. <laughs> like that's <laughs> right. all the weird psychological sides of it. Yeah, I don't ever right. want my son to go through, but you know what I, I, the, the thing I keep thinking in my head is because, because for me, 
I had to shed that toughness when my depression hit its breaking point and I, I first started seeing doctors and going on medications because I realized this clinging to toughness is making it so I can never let my guard down. I can mm. never let anybody see that I'm feeling as bad as I am. It feels like right. weakness and you don't show that to people. And, and man, all that did was internalize it and, and make it build up in this pressure that, that really did put me in a dangerous spot. So the way I keep thinking of it is I go, I do want my son to know how to fight. But only for the sole purpose that if he ever comes around a corner in school and sees some kid getting picked on by four kids, he can be the second kid on that kid's team. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the perspective I think of it as I don't, and I don't want to sit here and be like, kids are soft today. I don't give a shit about that. I just go, the benefits so many, so much of our generation, right? Sits here and goes, I see all the benefits of how I was raised, but do those benefits outweigh the drawbacks? And and I, right. I think a lot of us honestly don't know, honestly <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. know. So you sit here, you go, how do I give them the benefits and reduce the drawbacks? And you just hope it's possible. Yeah. But you know, I also look at the music scene and I see how it has changed. And I see how a lot of the people younger than me weren't raised with this priority on have your guard up. People mm -hmm. have to earn your trust. And I actually sit here and I laugh. I go, now there is this idea that a show space is a safe space and that's awesome. And it's beautiful. And I'm not, I wish we had that. Cause I remember going in <laughs> right. and being like, Oh, there's four kids in hoodies. Yeah. Are they a youth crew that's going to beat us yeah. up? Or like, oh, here's there's a skinhead. Here's. I, yeah. I was just going to say, like, yeah. am I going? Am I? Ha do I really have to sit here and try to like surreptitiously see what color shoelaces these kids with shaved heads have on? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm scared of them and I will leave if it's a certain color. Like, I don't think that that's as much of a factor now, and I love that. Yeah, I mean, there probably is on sure. some level, right? Because. I remember even, you know, we can look back on it now and nostalgically, but I remember the kids 10 years older than me being like, oh man, this scene is soft, you know, compared yeah. to what I went through, compared yeah. to what we did in the 80s and you guys have it easy, you have this and this. And I, I can see where that instinct starts, but I think until people like you and I like spend a good like six months in underground basement shows again and really get into it's the thick true. of it. We're probably too old to understand, right? Yeah. And I, I certainly think there's still a dialogue about, you know, um, certainly a female attendees yeah. of shows, not always feeling yeah. safe and sure, you know, go to shows today, you go to punk shows, you go, I don't, I don't know that it would feel good being a person of color in the audience of this band yeah. that I love. So you still see how social chain, you know, it hasn't changed that way. No, it's horrifying almost. Yeah. I mean, I remember being at a Gaslight Anthem show. Well, yeah, I was there, obviously. <laughs> um, and and we're playing um, one of the bigger venues in Detroit. And it was nearly sold out, I, you know, like close to a thousand people there or something. I'm looking around the crowd and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, I'm in Detroit. Like, why... There, this is only white people. Like, where did they even come from? They don't even live in this town. I'm yeah. like, this is crazy how few 
you know, how little uh, uh, diversity there can be, it shows. And, and I do, I, that's something I've had to reconcile with almost because, I mean, I love to truly love the hardcore scene I came up in. And in so many ways, it, like you, you know, saved me, helped me, guided me, uh, not just in life, but like my morality, my ethics. Like, it's really a valuable thing to me. But I do have to recognize the fact that I was generally in rooms with 95%, you know, white, middle to upper class, like white kids, you know, and that was just what the scene happened to be built on. And, you know, I can't uh, sit here and be like, oh, fuck me for like not doing anything at 14 to change that. I was just in it. And like you, I was scared of my own situation and my, you know, like I wasn't even thinking like that at the time, but it's kind of horrifying. And in that regard, I think it's beautiful what's happening in the scene. Like you said, just there seems to be so many more bands and artists and places that would give someone who is not like a middle-class white kid, some version of a model of a different path, you know, or an alternative path, which is cool. I I think I actually feel very bummed when I think of the Gethard show because Mm. we had such a reputation for being a safe haven for underdogs. And I think it was true. Right. Um, I think so. I think a lot of people with mental illness certainly have rallied around me. And like I was saying before, I'm really proud that before quote unquote real shows had any female presence we did. And I actually do think also that in a way that was kind of surprising and beautiful. I think, I think, uh, LGBTQ kids really found some solace in that show, even if it wasn't like a tip of the spear issue for us. But right. I think that they sensed, you know, safety and, and, and welcome. And that's, that's huge. And like I said, that's why I'm like, I don't, it, it didn't feel performative. You know, it felt like, I know that for me, like the first, the first person I know, the first trans person I personally knew was someone who used to hang out at the Gethard show all the time in the audience. Someone who I, I know and love dearly who, and I'm like, what a beautiful thing I get to learn about this, but I still look at the old episodes and like I said, I don't really watch them cause I'm self-conscious, but yeah, yeah. you look at the audience. We used to seat the whole audience on screen, you know? I go, right. Man, yeah. oh, that is, I, I always thought of this show as forward thinking and that is a, really I was in there. Audience. I went, I went to the, I went to the method man one. Oh, I'm, did you, I'm surprised you never played the show with, yeah, him. I don't you know. with yeah. Jeff a lot, right? You've played with Jeff a lot and he played yeah, a few times. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. But, but I was that, a guest. I, I got good treatment. I went with Kevin Bannon. It was nice. Oh, good, good, good. And the, I, I've said often people will ask me like, you know, the show is so strange who are the guests that kind of most naturally understood what you were going for? And I've often said Method Man. Really? Got it, got it from the jump. <laughs> yeah, right. He's so see. relaxed and cool and was like, yeah, let's do it. Huh. That's, I remember him. I just remember one section where you like cut to commercial or something. And for some reason, he just started counting money. You uh-huh. remember that? He's yeah, just do. like inexplicably I, I took out his, his bankroll and just started leafing through. And I'm like, I don't know what he's trying to do with that, but I'm not going to stop watching it. You know? I <laughs> loved him. And, and we actually, we actually have like, 
not stayed in touch personally, but have crossed paths a number of times. And he actually has a show on Sirius Radio now all about Marvel Comics. Oh, no shit. And the old booker for our TV show helps book a lot of Marvel guest stuff. Huh. And he was like telling them, oh, as far as comic book, they wanted to kind of start with someone who wasn't a huge guest. So as Method Man was figuring out the format and he's like, as far as like people who are like notable enough, but that aren't going to blow out our big asks, he listed a few names and mine was there. He's like, get me together. That guy gets like me and him. Oh, we, shit. Know how to, we know how to play <laughs> off each other. And yeah. Sat and talked about Thor with Method Man on the radio. I'm pretty sure that means you're boys ah. with Method Man now. He, if you, uh, I'm about to say something that's going to sound braggy. But the first time I met him, there's these like weird things in TV called the TCA, the Television Critics Association. Okay. Where tons of TV reviewers and critics and journalists go to this hotel for a week and Mm. see all these presentations on new shows that are coming out. And everyone involved in it hates it. The journalists hate it. People on the creative end hate having to do it, but it's like you get in front of all of them. Who runs it? Like, like. Some this association, weird, of, yeah, yeah, huh. some weird industry thing. On Illuminati the thing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I was in the green room, like waiting to go do my thing. And Method Man was producing a show, uh-huh. and he saw me, and he like called me over. Wow. And I was like, hi. And he's like, you're Gethard, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I saw your HBO special. It was great. I was like, you have to be fucking kidding me, dude. He watched Career Suicide? He watched Career Suicide. And he told me, there. he said, there are three comedians who have ever made me think as much as they make me laugh. (gasps) And if I remember right, he goes, Chris Rock, Dave Uh Chappelle, Chris Gethard. And I was like, that is, first of all, huge (laughs) praise and mildly flattering, but A, not true. I can't ever, I cannot stomach the idea of being in a conversation with those names, but thank you. Oh, We're laughing man. together. So yeah, he's, I mean, he's, the, he's the best. That made me, you know, just any, any, any kind words from an artist from another medium always go sure. a long way, I think. And then to have it be someone like Method Man, I was like, oh, this is, this is wild. It's awesome. I mean, it all shows like his depth too, you know? Yeah. What was it like? Uh, I, I can't get into it too much because Brad will have a heart attack. But what what was it like to have John Starks on oh. as a Knicks guy? Where like were you just were you just elated? Like what what was his vibe personally? He was great. He definitely was Is he funny. He was he was he was comfortable and charming and warm in the environment, and that allowed the that allowed us to use our kind of, you know, improv Mm. background to make him funny and make him feel comfortable where he could be funny. He mostly agreed to be on the show because he was promoting a clothing line at the time. And part of the deal was that he wanted me and the co-host to all wear his clothes. So (laughs) if you watch it, we're all wearing these very weird (laughs) tracksuits, which was great. Uh, But I grew I was obsessed with John Starks because I felt like after Drazen Petrovic died in Jersey, Mm. It was like, okay to be a Knicks fan because it was so sad surrounding the Nets. It's pretty rough. John Starks was my dude. And you want to talk about a guy Jersey is built to love. John Starks, the ultimate, will come close and dunk on Jordan here and there, but will manage to just screw up the game that matters most. That is (laughs) that you are built to be a legend in New Jersey. 
It's true. And there's so many people who have come and gone since that have even had success who are yeah. less popular than he is. Uh, yeah. A legend, a legend amongst the uh, second place culture that is New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had to deal with it doubly hard in the last couple of weeks because I know you're a Knicks fan and every time the Knicks get good, especially, you know, since the Nets moved to Brooklyn, they're just hyper obsessed with this idea that it's a, uh, a Knicks town. So never be a Nets town. This is a Knicks town, you know? Yeah. And it, I even Jeff Rosenstock, our mutual friend, was making fun of me last night because I wrote and deleted a tweet, uh, <laughs> kind of rubbing it in the Knicks fans, just being like, hey, uh, you know, like, listen, I know this is New York's team. You've told me a million times before, but feel free to jump over the bridge and enjoy your life, you know? Yeah. Um, and I wrote that. I deleted it two minutes later. Somehow Jeff managed to get a screenshot and send it back to me. He's like, you deleted this? You coward. <laughs> Jeff's love of basketball is like, I feel like, like something that people might not expect um, from him. But one of the yeah. things I love most about Jeff Rosenstock that I've actually, actually, when we jumped the cable, when you were talking about the feeling of like you're selling out, I actually called Jeff and said, how do I do this the right way? Oh, cool. Kind of, I, I think, like, kind yeah. of, you know, like Ian Mackay, but someone uh, yeah. whose who's number that's I have. You know? Exactly, I came to that's exactly what came to mind. I'm like, Jeff is going to hate that, but he's Ian Mackay ish. Yeah. And, and I actually, his love of basketball, he and I linked up so hard on that. You just don't necessarily expect that from punks all the time. But one of the things I admire most about him that I actually have learned to try to emulate is. He does not apologize for the things that he loves. He doesn't mm -hmm. care. When Scott, everybody else, well, I was just going to say, when everybody else, everybody turned on Scott <laughs> and made a million jokes about how cheesy it was, and now it's starting to come back. Yeah. He never, he's always had Scott on his albums, and he's always, uh -huh. he's never apologized. He's like, yeah, no. Nope. Oh. Mike Park, less than Jake. They ruled back then. They rule now. And I'm like, it's true. I admire it. I admire Gotta it. Gotta respect that gumption. You really do. Indeed, indeed. It's like, like uh, oh, I like the things I like. I'm like, I've never been able to let my guard down that much. It's so funny, man. You admit yeah, to liking the things you like? What are you, the <laughs> bravest person I've ever met? It's, well, it's like, it's, it's like we were mentioning before. It's, a, it's this strange balance where in order to have that kind of gumption, you have to be sort of like a singularly isolated person. It's like, it's really a strange balance in entertainment. And that, it's actually something that I, I wanted to ask you about, which, you know, I know it's sort of well-worn territory, the idea that like there's a, a tie between, you know, um, like depression and being a good comedian or at least being some sort of a version of a, you know, sociologist who can understand what's happening with people. And in that said, you've had so many years in this industry. Have you ever met a happy comic on a personal level and was their comedy any good? Yeah. I mean, I think Ron Funches is the example that comes to mind. He okay. is like part of his persona is he overflows with a lot of joy. And then you meet him and you're like, oh, it's true. That's really refreshing. Mm. Um, I think Pete Holmes is like a genuinely pretty happy person. I've known him for many years, like certainly as his stresses, but 
Yeah. It just seems, you know, ha- likes a good time, likes people to have a good time. So they're out there. Um, but sa- sadly enough, I do think there is a, a running trend of, of like, uh, un- untreated bad stuff that often leads to like actual like tragedies in comedy, which is mm. disturbing and sad. Uh, how do you, you mean just like watching people kind of spin their own lives out? Yeah. Like there's, I, I really, even though I am probably a textbook example for many people, I really came to hate that conversation of like, Oh, you have to be fucked up to be funny. Yeah. Like, Oh, like the sad clown, like the, the funniest <clears throat> comics are the ones with all this damage and who drink too much, but they're the real truth tellers. And I'm like, I don't know. That's how we lost, you know, Chris Farley and John Belushi and how Richard Pryor wound up lighting himself on fire and, and Robin Williams. And I mean, go down the list, drugs, Mitch Hedberg, Greg Giraldo, like people from all different corners of the scene. Sure. Who you, you think of some people as this type of comic or that type of comic. And then you go, I wonder if there wasn't this like, romance put upon the idea of like the fucked up Mm. comedian. If people would just make an effort to be less fucked up, it makes me sad. And I've had friends. Where does that come from? Is that that like social idea that um, you can't express like pain or discontent without actually having it and then people kind of create it for themselves in order to be able to even tell those stories kind of? I think it, I think it goes in two directions, right? The one direction is what you just said, which is people go, I need to have like turmoil and angst in order to make comedy or make music or whatever, right. you know? Yeah. And then I think the other direction is a trap I fell into for a long time, which is I've got all these problems and they are getting real, but I'm, I'm pulling off funny stuff and that's very validating and the last thing I want to do is take a pill that's going to turn off that. Right. Um, so a lot of it, I think, is about like medication hesitancy and 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 the way people mm. demonize those and this idea of right. It's either people go, I want to create the turmoil to attain that, or I will not correct the turmoil so I don't lose that. Mm, right. And I think both of those are just. Uh, dangerous attitudes. I think they're dangerous attitudes. And it's just a lot of people where I'm like, I'd rather see you alive and or healthy. And I bet you'd still be funny, but even if you weren't, it's kind of sad to see people, you know, people who I yeah. know and love who just are willing to drink themselves to death and willing to just not treat clear cut illness and willing to, just roll with those things because they think it's a piece of the puzzle. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I wonder what would happen if it, if you just left it behind, you know? That's right. And it ages poorly too, doesn't it? It's like, it's like, uh, well, it doesn't, doesn't age. (laughs) Well, that's right. That's the problem. It doesn't age. (laughs) So Chris, I didn't realize I've had you on so long. So, you know, I'm going to give you the option of how we finish up here. Okay. Okay. And I've loved it too. You know, uh, just so you know, I have either, 
a fun question, mm-hmm. a serious question, mm-hmm. or both. It's up to you. Let's do both. We've already been going okay. so long. Yeah. All right. No need to get succinct now. It's not, <laughs> no, 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 no. I listen. I'm no Dan Rather. Um, <laughs> so I, I was listening just this morning. I was listening to the last, the most recent episode of Beautiful Anonymous, um, which is a super cool podcast and like. I think one of those ideas that like 10,000 people have had, but no one decided to execute and do it well. So I like really appreciate like just taking this like great, simple concept and executing it really well. Um, And I heard the last episode and I really, you know, I'll let people listen to it because it's such a personal tale. The guy was telling, I I don't want to, you know, um, present that for him, but I got the impression from the caller that his admission to you was like the first time anyone but a shrink or a partner had heard those words. Um, And you could almost hear the catharsis, like the, you know, the man paused and obviously gave it some thought before he decided to give this to you, you know? Um, And, and that's a really beautiful thing that you've created a space for someone to do that. And I was wondering for you, like, how do you internally take that stuff? Like, is it really heavy for you having to take these stories on and and work someone through it? Or, you know, I like my my brother had mental, um, you know, struggles through the years and and found a lot of relief in teaching and helping people and allowing other people to to voice that. So. Do you find it really heavy and hard to be that kind of catharsis for someone or or is it like personally enriching for you? Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear your brother dealt with it because I know how much it sucks. Um, I mean, I, I he's kinda... an adult now with a, a full career and a wife and beautiful child. So good. he's one, good, of the, good, good. one of the success stories, really. Good. Um, I would say probably similar like that. My, my doctor, I, I I got hit a point where I really was getting motivated to try to like help people. And I was even saying to my doctor, I never did this sadly, but I was like, I want to go do like Habitat for Humanity or something, but I don't know how to build anything. And she, she said, <laughs> she said like a lot of times when I realize my patients have turned a corner, it's when they want to help other people. And I, mm. I think that, I think that the listeners of, of, of my show have heard me both on the show and especially with the HBO special, like they've heard me put it out there. Like they know that I'm one of them. Um, and I think they recognize that that creates a lot of empathy Mm. and I think they know I'm not going to judge them and I'm so flattered by it. And I feel very, it's, it's maybe the thing I've become most proud of just as it goes on longer and longer. I'm like really proud of it. And, as far as if it's heavy, there, there's two things. There's there's two things I can point to, which is one, when we release the episodes, and I can see the community surrounding the show start to react and support these people. It's always a huge pressure relief for me because with the dark mm-hmm. episodes, when we record them, but haven't released them yet, right. and I'm like the only person who's taken it in. Yeah, That can sometimes mess with my head. And then another thing that I'm very, very lucky happens is when I go on the road, 
quite often people will wait for me after the show and they'll, right. you know, they'll, they'll point to an episode of beautiful anonymous and like the one you're pointing to dealt with someone who's opening up about abuse, having endured yeah. abuse, you know, and then I'll have somebody tell me, Oh, you know, I heard that call and, and I was abused too. And it actually made me, you know, there were things that that person said that I've never said out loud and, and, you know, where people say, I saw your HBO special and they'll tell me, oh, I, I tried to kill myself in 2009 and I watched your special and it actually felt like, oh, somebody's actually saying things that I have felt that wow. you're usually not allowed to say. And those beautiful. are beautiful, like beautiful, yeah. beautiful things to be told. But then sometimes that's while I'm doing a four day club date in Bloomington, Indiana. Right. I don't know too many people. And now I'm going back to the hotel and thinking about how sad the world is and how awful right. people yeah. can be to each other. And sometimes that, like I would say 95% of the time I just go, man, I'm, I'm really flattered and I'm really proud that I've built some things that, that, uh, some maybe some outcasted people or people who feel oh, silenced right. feel less so like that's awesome and then the other five percent of the time is really really hard yeah i mean being alone in a hotel room in you know toledo or something is is tough on the brain enough and you yeah can't. especially after you had a kid right it changes all oh that. yeah Oh yeah. It's like my greatest fear is that he ever feels how I felt back then. You know, it's like my greatest fear. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's even a question I had in here is like, are you worried about, about, about that at all? When you're, when your child becomes sentient and starts looking back into, you know, your comedy career and your specials and pods and stuff like that? Is there, are there things in there that like you now wish weren't in there or you're just, you're oh, just going yeah. like, hey, kid, like, this is me, like, on a fucking platter, okay? Uh, it's it's like the the dark stuff, like the depression stuff. I was always so scared. Like, someone told me something beautiful. I wish I remember who told me this. I was like, I am so scared to have a child because I don't ever want him to feel what that way. Yeah. And, and I remember somebody saying to me, like, oh, you don't realize, like, he's going to grow up knowing that you're never going to be mad at him or sad if he comes to mm. you. Like, yeah, he's going to yeah. know, like you talked about it. So he's going to, and I was like, Oh my God, like what a gift, what a gift to be told that. But that stuff, I'm like, I hope he does find that when, certainly when he's old enough and I'm sure it might make him sad. And the thing I worry about more with the depression stuff is our bully's going to find it and use it against him. Are, is mm. someone going to, on a schoolyard, push him? And when he pushes back, they're going to go, your dad is the guy who tried to kill himself a few times. Like, is uh, that going to be a weapon? Right. And right, that right. will fill me with, with a lot of, uh, I don't even know how I'll react. If it'll be just rage sure. or sadness or what. I'm more, I'm just more scared. Cause, cause you know, Hallie, my wife was on the Gethard show too. She was the band yeah. leader. And like, so that's the thing when he's like, how did you guys meet? We're going to be like, we met through a public access show. He's going to be like, can I see it? I'm going to be like, yeah, it's all on YouTube. And he's going to pick some episode where 
a dominatrix is like dripping wax onto me or someone's eating a burrito off my bare chest. Like that's actually the sillier stuff is the stuff more than like, I don't want to explain to him, you know, why I once brought a kickboxer into a public access TV show and let him beat the shit out of me on TV. Like turned in and be like, it was, it felt, it seemed funny at the time, you know, that's, that's a bigger fear. That's funny. You're probably going to wind up with like, uh, you know, a burgeoning engineer who's in the chess club and, and very straight just by being like, you know, yeah, my dad had a burrito eaten off his chest. I'm, I'm just not going down that road, you know? Well, cer- certainly <laughs> with, with, with me and Hallie Bullet as your parents, to be a black <laughs> sheep in our family, you got to like go into finance and have a very stable, yeah, you have to I have a 401k that. to really rebel against That's right. me and Hallie That's right. from the unlovables, you know? Yeah. My entire relationship was based off the fact that we felt like the weird kids at the lunch table. So it's like, I'm almost actively being like, wait, am I making my kids fucking weird? You know, yeah, like, like I'm actively yeah. like fighting against that a little bit. I'm like, I'm like, I know all I know about is, you know, Iron Maiden and 80s comedies and, uh, you know, the New Jersey Nets and, <laughs> and super <laughs> weird stuff. But like, I'm like, but that's what I know, you know, so I guess it's what he's going to know. He's going to have a yeah. love for drums and uh, Ron Burgundy, you know. My dad told me because I have like thousands of Marvel comics. And I said, okay. to my, I said to my dad, I was like, I cannot wait till he gets into comics. I just be like, oh, really? Boom. Enjoy. And my dad goes, yeah, good luck with that. Because all I ever liked was DC Comics and Star Trek. And all you ever liked was Marvel and Star Wars. Like, He's going to hate so everything you love. Yeah, of course. No, of course. no way. That's how it works. It's not true. My kids are mad into Marvel. And they, they themselves saw the difference between DC and Marvel. You know, oh, DC. Oh, smart get kids. Out of here. Get out of here with the yeah. clown, the clown stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Chris, now we're going to round out with the fun question, okay. which was to just jump back to New Brunswick a little. Um, one of my claims to fame in life is that at Paulie's Pizza on Easton Ave, I have a grease truck sandwich named uh, after myself. I was going to say, I was going to say, do you have a fat sandwich? Do you I do, do the thing where you have to eat like, don't you have to eat I, like five so, of them in an hour or something? Well, when I was coming up, it was three in a row. Okay. That you had to do, you know, consecutively. Um, I had heard it got jumped up to five because I think like almost like a food challenge people started hearing about that and being like, yeah, yeah I could do it, you know. And then yeah. that's when I think you started getting too many sandwiches on the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, I luckily was a delivery guy for Paulie's Pizza on Easton Ave when they changed their menu to include fat sandwiches. And since I was uh, a legacy at that point, I was able to create my own without eating the three in a row. Can um, I ask what's on it? Sure. It was called the Fat Veggie Benny, and it was fried eggplant, portobello mushrooms, mozzarella sticks, breakfast potatoes, and ranch dressing. Breakfast potatoes instead of fries. You know what I'm saying? You genius. Come on. on. That sounds so good. (laughs) It's pretty fucking good. And uh, I think subsequently, Polly's Pizza has closed the last time I was in New Brunswick. So I think I'm officially off the the, uh, grease truck pantheon now, which is sad. I'd love to get back one day. I think Tata's closed too. Uh, It's been tough in town. You know, they have like a, you know... um, 
hipster burrito places now and, and Starbucks. It's, it's a very different place. And all the students were gone for a full year. Yeah, right. And that. Um, so when you were in New Brunswick and you were at Rutgers, uh, what was your go-to sandwich? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. can you think or remember any epic grease truck parking lot stories? Yes, my go-to most sandwich. Most people have some. Yes. Uh my my go-to I actually have an amazing grease truck story for you. <laughs> uh, my go-to sandwich is now called the Fat Beach cuz they okay. said that it could no longer be called the Fat Bitch, which I think is a oh, good thing. Yes, I remember that. Cheesesteak, chicken fingers, mozzarella sticks and fries on one sandwich. Oh. I always go no on. rabbit food, no rabbit food on. <laughs> no uh, rabbit food. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, you don't want hot lettuce on that shit. No, no rabbit food. Yeah. And then the other sad phrase they would say is if you <laughs> didn't want mayonnaise, I believe it was mayonnaise, they would say, uh, they'd be like, yeah, give me the fat. This sentence, this sentence was acceptable right, in, yeah. in our era of New Jersey. Fat uh-huh. bitch, no rabbit food, extra pussy juice. That was that was literally <laughs> a sentence that was said all the time. Oh, those park guys were the awful. worst. They Just were the awful. worst. So the first time I ever ate a fat sandwich was actually... I decided to go to Rutgers uh, and it was the summer before my freshman year. Okay. And a bunch of my brother's friends, uh, the reason I was hanging out at that 11 Robinson street house was because my buddy, Mike D who now co-hosts the New Jersey podcast with me. Oh yeah. Uh He was one of my brother's best friends. He lived at this house. So my brother was hanging out there that summer. He's like, you're going to Rutgers. Come down with me. We'll hang out with those guys. And then there's actually a party in Philly where my brother uh, went to school. So he's like, we'll hang out at, Rutgers for a while. You meet those guys, you come party in Philly. I'm like, it's my older brother. Let's do it. So I went and we got fat sandwiches and we ate them before we left. And then this is, yeah, this is not like the parking lot story, but, but we're like halfway to Philly from New Brunswick, which is not that long a trip. Yeah. No, about an hour maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I start like sweating in the car. Oh boy. And I'm like, I feel weird. And everybody's like, yeah, I don't know, man, maybe you're getting car sick or whatever. Then we parked the car, and when I stepped out, it's, this has never happened again. My foot hit the sidewalk when I stepped out of that car, and in my head, it sounded like a bomb went off. I was just like, what? oh, my God, like leaning against a tree, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Whoa. I started sweating, Um, like couldn't really see right, was just kind of oh like- my God. In this apartment we were hanging out in before we went to the party, just like laid out on an armchair. And my brother kind of like got me into the car and still took me to the party. My brother and all our friends. <laughs> Greg like, later, what are you doing? They were like, you'll get over it, whatever it is. And we got there and they threw me on the bed where everybody's putting their coats. Oh, God. And I, it turned out to be food poisoning, obviously. It was... It was <laughs> I still think it probably is the closest to death I've ever come. Um, a, a friend of my brother's, I met him a couple years later and he was like, how you doing, man? This and that. And I realized, I was like, have we talked before? Or he was like <laughs> referencing things. And I was like, I don't think we've met. And he's like, oh no, I talked to you for like an hour at that party. I was keeping you company while you were laid on the bed. I was like, no memory of that. Oh my God. Wow. Zero memory. Never knew that happened. And I'll never forget my buddy... He drove our car home for me. He, we lived in the same hometown. 
in West Orange. So he drove my car back to West Orange, but he was scared of my dad. And he was like, when they see you and understand we took you to the party anyway, he's going to, your dad's going to be pissed. And he was, he was really pissed. So my buddy, Steve dropped me off like a mile from my house. And then I drove the rest home and just like got out of the car and was like leaning against the car. And my, my parents took one look at me. I never even went in the house. They took me into a, they took me straight to an urgent care. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And, and the doctor. And you had just driven yourself. Like a mile. It was oh probably the most dangerous mile drive yeah, of my life. That's rough. And uh, we went to the urgent care. And I remember the doctor going, how are you feeling today? And I go, well, I mean, not good, but um, actually better than, than last night. And he goes, well, that's astounding because right now you have an 104 degree temperature. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And that whole summer I was laid up for weeks. So I have pictures from my freshman year of college where I, I look I look um, gaunt. Cause I think I went, I was a, already like a very tiny kid yeah. and I think I lost over 20 pounds because of that food poisoning that summer. Holy um, shit. You were almost killed by the grease trucks. I, I was. So the, the idea that I would go on to eat yeah. those <laughs> consistently throughout my four years at Rutgers, just yeah. t- that was probably my first suicide attempt, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> what was like the first bite back? Do you remember? Like was, were you tense or you're just uh, like, fuck it? I did. I avoided it for a long time. And yeah. then I finally went once I was probably drunk and it Yeah. Just drunk it. enough. You didn't care. And it was so good. <laughs> yeah. Just so good. And I was back on board. Oh, that is too funny. I'm with you. My my grease truck sandwich got uh got edited too. My my favorite was the fat veggie Indian, which I think oh, yeah. is called something else now because that's not nice. I can't believe that happened to you. Wow, that is yeah. the atypical grease truck story. But I gotta I gotta think the regulator here that was kind of poor form, you know. Yeah, it was it was ill advised. He he still kind of hates when I tell that story, and he says that I exaggerated and everything. And I'm like, but the basic fact that I had food poisoning and you took yeah. me to a party, you know, that's true, right? He's like, yeah, but this whole thing that you were hallucinating and stuff isn't real. I was like, Greg, I was, I was, if I wasn't hallucinating, I was having the most intense dreams I've ever, one or the other, yeah. it was a bad night, you know? It was either a hallucination or like a mozzarella stick fever dream. I was yes, yes yeah. exactly. You get it. You get it. Oh, that's too funny, yeah. man. Well, Chris, we're at almost the two hour mark, man. Thank you yeah. so much. I hope I didn't bore people all- too much. Oh, no, no, this has been fantastic. I had a blast, seriously. Yeah, me too. All day. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope well we uh, cross paths soon now that the world is coming back. I know. It's kind of remarkable. One day. One day it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, Chris. And thanks for everything you do. I um, uh, legitimately have been a fan of yours for a long time. And and I appreciate your work and the the way you go about it, for real. So keep it up. That's you know? super, super kind and very motivating. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, dude. That was brilliant. All right, have a good one, Chris. You too. Oh, wow. Goodness. We just went on a, a magic carpet ride. I didn't even realize how long it was until I looked up, man. I mean, that was a great convo. Yeah, fairly epic. He's an easy guy to talk to. Oh, I, he's yeah. like... Yeah, I feel like I, f- I do feel like we would have a great private conversation going late into the night, but I also have a feeling it would be super fucking depressing. Yeah. You know? 
Like, I don't know if we'd uplift each other, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, Chris is great. I really enjoy talking to him, but there is like, I don't know his whole thing. It's, it's not about like uplifting you. It's about accepting reality, right? It's about accepting your situation Um, and finding a way through it. And, and, you know, and that's just as important. It's a little less naive than just trying to be like, Hey, let's just be happy all the time. Well, Yeah, and but given that, I must say that um, that was pretty upbeat for Chris Gethard. I felt I felt like that was a really yeah. good, that was a great, you know, conversation with him. Yeah, we had a nice time, and good luck to his New York Knicks. Uh, <laughs> by this time, by it airs, we'll probably be somewhere around game two. It's very tense here in New York. The Knicks fans were all prickly. They're like, "This is a fucking Knicks town, man. The Nets. This will never be the Nets town." That's what they sound. I mean, it's kind of true, but they're so insecure about it, you know? Right. Um, And I know you sent it to me about, you know, 14 minutes before the interview started, but Chris's uh, new doc, Half My Life, really seems pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, some great crocodile footage in there or alligators. Alligators. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It does comedy for alligators. I, I tried to get a quick mystery friend. Because I saw that he had said uh, the colony in Woodstock was one of his favorite places. And Mike Campbell, you know, a former bass player uh, and uh, muse and husband of Laura Stevenson, is the main booker there. So I tried to hit him ah, up for right. a last-minute Chris Gethard story. <laughs> but I digress. Yeah, that Thanks, show, Brad. I think it's li- it goes live, I think, Tuesday. I think... It's either Tuesday or Wednesday. If you're listening yeah. to this today, Wednesday. So rad. Um, definitely check it out. It's it's yeah. great. It's great. Yeah. And if you're if you're listening to this, please his his podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, is it's fucking amazing as well. Really powerful. Really awesome. Half my life is great. Career suicide is great. Whatever Chris does is going to be great coming up. I hope maybe he gets reinvolved with Weird New Jersey. We didn't talk about that in the interview. But he worked for Weird New Jersey, and that's one of my all-time favorite magazines. Oh, right. Um, so maybe he could jump back in. That'd be fun. <laughs> and he's at, uh, what, at Chris? He is uh, Chris Geth uh, on Instagram and Chris Gethard on Twitter. Yeah. Get hard. Yeah, and and yeah, and definitely check out that podcast because it's, it's pretty special. That Twitter is Butte Anon for Beautiful Anonymous. Um, Are we still allowed to say Anon? It feels dirty now. (laughs) Now I feel dirty saying it. I just did say it. I just said it. I think you're on a list now. I'm definitely on a list. You're probably already on a list. I'm sure you did something in the... I hope so. I hope I'm worthy of a fucking list. (laughs) You know, you can check. You know, via the Freedom of Information Act, you can find out if you have an FBI file. And I did do it like in the late 90s, just kind of like for a kick, because someone told me. And then I realized, like, of course, I don't have an FBI file, but I probably do now. You know, (laughs) since I just asked if I had looked for one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What's he care? Yeah. They're like this guy. You know, why is he fishing around? Let's just start one. You know, he looks suspect (laughs) with his mustache. Oh, this is way before must. I couldn't grow a mustache till my thirties. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's boring. But (laughs) thanks to Chris, and uh, I had a blast talking to him. And 
really enjoy getting them on. Next week's going to be great too. Yeah. So thanks to everyone for listening to this program going off track. It means the world to us. Leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Go to our patreon.com slash going off track. If you want to become a patron, we got some awesome new patrons. Welcome all y'all. Um, Hopefully we Yikes. can keep you happy. And uh, all y'all, <laughs> where the fuck did that come from? I don't know. Fall asleep. I thought you were from Western <laughs> Massachusetts. You, you people talk like that up there? Hell yeah, all right. boy! <laughs> <laughs> all right, brother. Let's all right. get out of here. Let's go. Let's go.